0: tennis podcast i'm steve smith along with Ivan ozaretz hello
1: hello yep how do you say yvonne ozaretz ozaretz like, if you want to do it in a russian accent you go Ivan ozaretz Ivan is an idiot <laughs> <laughs> yeah say it so, one more time yvonne
0: ozaretz uh, we're gonna call someone else up here shortly with a russian name nick It's mm-hmm. gonna be great um but let's know, let you know. First of all, podcast 169. Thanks for listening. We're coming to you from Wintergreen Resort, Wintergreen, Virginia. Yesterday, Yvonne and I had a tour of the White House. Give me that. That was kind of cool. This is going to be cool. Call Nick up, great passion for tennis. He started his tennis with Jim Klein, Doylestown tennis. And his story is in New York City. Look up court 16. Tennis. New York City Court 16. And He's going to tell us about his business, his background in tennis, but he's an expert on the big three. Can you name
1: the big three? Ooh, tough one, yes. Uh, we got Nadal, we got Djokovic, we got Federer. Actually, I'm a p- proponent of people used to say big four because Murray was in the mix.
0: Yeah, you got to love Murray.
1: But uh, I w- I'm a big Wawrinka fan, and if there's a big four, there's a big five. They won the same amount of majors. So, I mean, there's an argument there, but there's a big three, yeah.
0: I like the fact with that. Uh that or smart guy? He was asked to be. He, he had three wishes. One, Nadal would have played soccer. Two, he had what rink his backhand. Mm-hmm. And three, he'd save his wish. Yeah, save his wish. But uh, no, I study. Uh, you know, he's made an in-depth study of the big three. But let me call him up. New York City. That's a difficult place to find court time. Ring one. Great base Tennis Podcast guest, Nick Nemirov. Another person who loves tennis. Hello? Good afternoon, Nick. Nick, how are you?
2: Hey, guys.
0: How's it going? Yeah, we uh, just went through the uh, the Russian uh, pronunciation of your last name.
1: Nick, go ahead.
0: Nemirov? Nemirov. Nemirov.
2: How
0: would you say it, Yvonne?
1: Uh, well, Nemorov, yeah, Nemorov, you could, you could add a little Russian twist to it, but there maybe a couple of different pronunciations. Mm,
2: yeah, I'll let you guys, I'll let you do that one, Yvonne.
1: Nemorov or Nemorov? It. it used something. to be Nemorovsky. Oh, wow. And then it was cut down. Oh, so Nemorovsky. So Nemorov, Nemorov. Yeah. Nick Nemorov. Exactly. Okay. But we,
0: but we can't forget your Italian heritage. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly.
0: With, uh, Gotta love the Italians, spaghetti. <laughs> with uh, yeah, tell us about your story. We start generally with our guests. Uh, Where would your passion for tennis begin? I mentioned I mentioned it before we started with Doylestown, but go tell us a little bit about your story in tennis, your start.
2: Yeah, well, growing growing up, I played I played soccer from the age of four to twelve, and in two thousand four, my fa- I lived in Florida in a place called Punta Gorda and my family we were in a category four nearly five hurricanes and um, this hurricane really wrecked our town pretty bad and my parents had our family moved from Florida to Doylestown Pennsylvania uh, and that's when I did a summer camp that had a ton, ton of different sports and I took an interest in playing tennis at the camp and uh, I remember the first match I ever played at the camp, I was playing doubles and I let a ball go into the alley and then called it out. And then I was like, yes, we won the point. And my partner uh, was like, dude, that was, that was in. we're playing doubles now. <laughs> and uh, that was the first match I ever remember playing uh, a few months later. I was like, all right, I got to learn how to play. I got to learn how to play better. So I started taking lessons at to Doyle's town tennis club. Uh, You know, run by Jim Klein, who's been on your podcast, took uh, lessons from Jim and Ryan Reedy of Two Minute Tennis and a few other great instructors there, all under, you know, Vic Braden's uh, philosophy. You know, I know, obviously, Jim trained under you as well, Steve, and, you know, everything that we learned was, was rooted in that. And I started playing once a week for about six months, quit soccer and started just gradually upping the amount that I played each week and just became obsessed. And I, and within like a year, year and a half, I I couldn't do anything else. And all I wanted to do was play tennis. Caught the bug. Exactly. Addicted Mm -hmm.
0: with, uh, so you, you played through juniors and through college, you, you, or I should say through juniors in high school, you, um, tennis was number one. You didn't play soccer after that.
2: Yeah, didn't play any soccer. Started playing tournament probably two, two and a half years after, you know, starting to play. Uh I lost my first two matches, six oh, six oh. Uh I remember just being so so, you know, miserable after those matches, but also at the same time having this feeling like, all right, I'm really upset, but I'm also really driven at the same time to start doing better. It took me almost a whole year um to win to win a set even in a match. And coincidentally, funny enough, I won the first match. I, after not winning a set for a year, I won the first match. I ever played 6-0, 6-0 against someone who was playing their first tournament. Mm. So it was a good way for me to get my first win. And then, you know, I played juniors, not at a, at a super high level, but I played juniors, played high school tennis. Um, and I also started, when I was in high school, I started really watching a lot of pro tennis. And I got really fascinated by the pro tour. I started doing some writing uh, for a site called Bleacher Report in, I think, 2011. Just, you know, they would allow anyone to write. So I started doing some writing about matches um, and players and tournaments. Um, and that led to me writing more about tennis when I was, you know, when I was in college. And I wrote, wrote, I wrote for a few tennis, one, one tennis website, one tennis magazine, had the opportunity to interview Michael Chang. I interviewed Billie Jean King um i interviewed vic as well jim was allowed me to or helped me set up an interview with vic uh i interviewed francis piafoe Mm. i interviewed uh well i didn't interview but i was part of a press conference with federer uh which was really cool and and dimitrov so that was you know as like a 20 how old was i at that point i was like 20 22 um so that was like a pretty cool experience for being like just a young college kid um and yeah, so just, you know, I, I think I was a lot more passionate about tennis than I was good at it, you know? I would, people always ask me who I teach, like how, you know, how good are you? Like, could you be a pro? And I always laugh when they say, I'm like, I'm good enough to teach you, uh, but not, I, won't, I, I won't be going on the, on, on the pro tour anytime soon.
0: Did you study journalism after high school or or even during high school?
2: Yeah, uh, not during high school, but my first year at NYU, I took journalism classes. And, you know, I realized at that point, the only thing that I would want to write about is tennis. And after that, I switched over to becoming a politics major. But while I was at NYU, the whole time I knew, like, I I need to do something with tennis, whether it's writing about tennis, coaching tennis, I've got to do something with tennis. You know, I'm sitting in my college classes, either, you know, watching matches, reading articles. Uh, you know, I was watching, you know, I remember in 2015, I was a junior, I was watching great bass videos all the time. Um, that would be in class, you know, in between classes. So I, I knew that, you know, uh, tennis was, was my calling for sure.
0: With, um, NYU, I know it's a difficulty to get in because I have many students who've applied mm-hmm. who've been rejected, but, yep. uh, New York city, that's a pretty tough place to get court time. Correct.
2: Oh my God. Yeah, it is. Uh, so the place that I play at most regularly, which is about a six-minute walk from my house, and I live in this neighborhood because of it. The sign-up process is: they bring a sheet out every morning, a park attendant at seven thirty in the morning, and then you, at that point you sign up for time slot, hour time slots between eight a.m. and eight p.m. Obviously, now it's a little bit cut down, but I, you know, in in the best weather of the year, those lines start forming. I'm not kidding you at five forty-five a.m. <laughs> And, uh, there will be 60, 70 people, even, maybe even more in the line, um, to get a court. Uh, so people are going to sacrifice sleep. They're going to sacrifice, you know, their mornings to get a court. Uh, it's very difficult. A lot of people want to play. There's limited resources. Uh, there's a place called Hudson River Park where people are known. I've done it. Wait like several hours. We're talking like three, four hours just to get a court for, and you can only play for an hour. You no, know, in the seventies. Yeah, so it is very difficult.
0: In the nineteen seventies, I was a perennial tennis bum of Boca Raton, Florida, and you have to had to wait. And po- you'd have to be at the park before it opened up, and there would be a line waiting to play. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you, yep, that's what, what this is. What about the the spread? I mean, is it uh, six months in, six months out? What would you What would you call the outdoor season? What months?
2: Uh, uh, do you mean like how are people when people are playing outside?
0: yeah so when does indoor season where you
2: yeah um honestly i really think like the outdoor season probably starts like let's say like end of april beginning of may and then i really feel like it starts really slowing down about now like beginning of november so like may to november so yeah like six months but there's some hardcore people including myself who it's like, it doesn't matter how cold it is. As long as there's not a lot of wind, we'll go outside. Like I played in like 20 degree weather afterwards, not being able to tie my shoe. Mm-hmm. And that's actually when you can get the most core time because no one's there to, uh, to kick you off at, in, in that kind of weather.
0: So before going to college, you must have, uh, actually, actually taught for gym as well. Correct.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Taught for gym, mainly like younger kids, um, you know, the early childhood development. So I did that. Um some adults, but yeah, pretty much just under the tutelage of Jim and Ryan and and the two other coaches there, named Corey and Corey and Mary Lou.
0: Yeah, Corey and Mary Lou. It's amazing. Jim on our podcast, the the longevity that that's a incredible. A tribute to him and how how long people have worked for him. It's great. I mean, absolutely you know, it's you're talking decades, right?
2: It's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Do you get back to
0: Dolph much or are you uh, have family yeah
2: I, I just I just came from there today yeah, yeah my parents still live there um yeah I'll go to oh I didn't go to the club this weekend but you know I'll go to the club and play talk to Jim I mean Ryan's not working in there anymore but talk to Corey talk to Mary Lou uh but yeah I'll go there maybe like once once a month once every month and a half it's great to just be able to go there and just get on a court I mean it's just like you know if you live in Doylestown you don't it doesn't mean anything to you but coming from New York, it's such a luxury just to have a hundred tennis courts within a ten minute, you know, distance from where my parents live, and the fact that there's no waiting and you can play as long as you want. It's like it's crazy. It just feels amazing to be able to do that.
0: Um, no, we have many things to cover. But let's. When you give a shout out to Ryan Reedy and the listeners, uh, if they haven't already looked at his uh, program, two minute tennis. Why don't you give him a commercial, Bump his tires. Mm. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, I I would say like, you know, I'm you know, learning to become a better coach in the last five or six years, I would say by far the two channels I've looked at the most are great base and and two minute tennis. And I feel like you guys obviously are, you know, you're both dealing with VIX information Um, and I've learned so much from each. So if anyone listening, this is trying to become a better coach, you should definitely go on, on YouTube and watch great base tennis and, and two minute tennis.
1: Thank you.
0: Oh, thanks. With New York City, tell us about uh, your business, Court Sixteen, the evolution of that from being a college student and how how that how your time has evolved and what what you've built.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's a you know it's a it's a cool story of how I first started working at Court Sixteen. I was trying to become certified as a tennis coach um, because you know I didn't know what I was going to be doing after NYU. You know, so I was like, all right, you know, if I go back to coach with Jim, i'm not going to need any type of certifications but you know maybe i want to go somewhere else so i was getting certified by the uspta and i had to do one more tenant under clinic and i'm very on point with being on time like i hate being late and um i was in pennsylvania the clinic was at 9 a.m i was running late i know i was on time but then i couldn't find the courts when i had gotten to this big park called Riverside Park because they have two sets of tennis courts and I went to the wrong one and I kept asking and asking and after a while like I almost left because no one knew where these courts were where I had to go like let me ask one more person and this guy's like oh yeah you just have to go here and I was already 15 minutes late at that point and that's where I met my you know current boss and, and owner of, of court 16 if I had not asked this one other dude you know where where to go I would have never met him I wouldn't be coaching at this place for the last 10 years. Um, and yeah, so that was, you know, that was very, obviously a very fortunate event, but yeah, when I first started coaching at the club, my first day of coaching there, I show up, I teach one student for 30 minutes and then I left. Uh, and you know, since that point we've expanded, we now have three locations in Queens, one in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn. And we just opened two brand new facilities, one in downtown Brooklyn, uh, at a building called the city point building, which is a really well-known building. It's not a place you would imagine for there to be a tennis club. It's inside a shopping mall. Um, so it's a cool place for people to come play tennis and then go shopping or groceries or like go get a beer. There's like a brewery downstairs. So it's definitely a cool place, uh, to do, to have a club. And then the club in Manhattan is actually in like a big office building at the bottom of an office building. Um, but you know, getting space in Manhattan, you know, is, is not, is not easy um and uh yeah so now we have three clubs that we have about i would say we have about you know 25 30 coaches between the clubs and uh yeah my job is to, just to manage the the tennis operations between the three clubs and to make sure everything is is in harmony
0: yeah i need to check it out i i know one time we talked about you know i was going to go by and, and meet with you and mm-hmm. but it was the pandemic and what happened with that it was crazy times but right go back uh Court 16. It's a unique name, but tell us the story behind the story.
2: Yeah. So the owner Anthony, he grew up in Belgium playing at a club that had many courts and the court he always practiced on was court number 16. And that was his court that he had always trained on. And that's how he came up with the name.
0: And now all your sites are still, they're all called court 16.
2: Yeah. Court 16, Brooklyn, court 16, Manhattan, court 16, Long Island city, the one in Queens.
0: Oh, that's great. And you, all encompassing program, you work with all levels? I mean, I, I know I've been
2: on your website. Uh, sure. Um, n- no, no, I would, no, I would say the highest level that we have coming in is probably, and it's not coming in that often, but it's like a 4.5. So I would say like for adults, at least we work with like people who are 4.0 and below. Um, and then for kids, we work with, you know, obviously beginners all the way up to like kids who are just starting to play tournaments and get their feet wet with tournaments. So we're definitely not like other clubs in in the city, like a John McEnroe that is very, you know, what they call, you know, high performance where you have kids who are playing four or five days a week, several hours a day, really training for tournaments. That's not, that's not what we do.
0: And what about court space? Do you break it up? Were you with group dynamics?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the toughest thing in in New York. So in the Brooklyn location, we have one full-size court. We have one court that's a 60-foot court that we use more for beginners and what we call advanced beginners. And then we have five pickleball-sized courts, which we then use for obviously pickleball. And then we use for um, kids as well. So, you know, kids who are younger and just learning, Um, you know, know, ideally you would have a a whole fleet of full-size courts, but, the reality is in New York, just getting space is, is very difficult. Um, but you, we do group lessons, private lessons. Um, we started doing, you know, lesson, one lesson type of lesson we started doing last like year and a half or so. Or private lessons using a ball machine where the ball machine is feeding the ball and I'll stand on the side of the court with the player. And, um, you know, I think it's been great because I can really just focus on their technique and, and I can film them and slow things down and show them, you know, for the most part, I think the number one issue that I, with people that I teach is that they don't close their racket face. So most of the time, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about that. Uh, and I'm able to show them that. Um, and uh, you know, they're, they're having trouble hitting spin, but with this ball machine that we have, we've created a system where you hit the ball machine against, you know, a, a curtain or a backstop. And then it it goes into essentially like a gutter or a funnel and it goes right back into the machine so then there's no ball pickup um so you're saving a lot of time which is great and you can obviously focus more time on getting better and i think in new york a lot of people are only playing once or twice a week so that's really helpful
1: that's great i haven't heard of that kind of system
2: yeah yeah it's definitely uh, it's definitely like an, an original thing
0: with marketing what i mean as far as marketing you probably answer go back uh, what did what was your uh what was your final degree at NYU?
2: It was, it was, it was politics and public policy, essentially like U S government, which now I don't even think about at all. And I try not to think about
0: (laughs) (laughs) with, uh, I was just going to ask your time in in school. Was there ideas from your education or insights, things that helped you out once you got started in tennis? I mean, obviously you had such a great background with Jim and his staff. Um,
2: no, there really wasn't. Honestly, what helped me was focusing on tennis while I was in class. <laughs>
0: With, uh, Tell us about the big three. Mm-hmm. Uh, your Twitter account, when you start there.
2: Yeah. I mean, COVID happened. Well, I started the account in 2019. I was like, all right. I've been watching and following these guys nonstop. The last, you know, 2019 would have been like, 12 years, 12, 13 years, no one's really created a Twitter account about their, you know, about them. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. It was right after the federer Djokovic 2019 Liberty final where Federer had those match points, excuse me. And I didn't really do much with it. And then COVID happened and our clubs were closed for a few months. And I was doing some work to prepare for the opening, but I had more free time on my hands than usual. So, I was, you know, like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, all right, let me pick this back up. And I started realizing that people were really into the stats behind the big three. Uh, and for me, just finding cool, innovative, unique stats. And it started to allow the page to obtain good traction. I think in the first five months I gained like 5,000 followers. Now it's all the way up to, you know, here we are like three years later, like 30,000. And I've got some, you know, well-known people within the tennis world like Tracy Austin, Pam Shriver um chris fowler uh a a good amount of you know well-known people former prime minister of serbia who follow the account so it's been cool to see it get that kind of traction but also added technical insights analyzing old matches um you know also offering you know my opinions on what's happening during the match my analysis during the match um which which really helps the page grow um you know what? For me is you know truthfully that is part of my goal is to really grow the page because I am in the process of writing a book about the big three, so I'd like my audience to be as big as possible once the book is finished. Um, so I'd be lying if I said I you know wasn't trying to just continually expand the the page as far as audience, and that's like a big motivation.
0: I know the the focus is on the big three, but how about some of the interviews you did beforehand? Um, how would listeners? Um, I mean, is there Ways to find um, out, you know, read about your interviews with, you know, Billy yeah, King, and uh, Francis Dioffo, and yeah, others?
2: Yeah, the Billie Jean King one I did for a website called the Tennis Island. So if they wanted to read the article I wrote about it, they'd have to type my name, um, last name N-E-M-E-R-O-F-F, Tennis Island, and they would find it. And the other ones were Tennis View Magazine. So those interviews are all there. If they just look up my name and with the player, they can find those interviews.
0: Yeah, we, we could connect after the podcast and perhaps yeah. uh, post those again for you.
1: Yeah, with, with the uh, fandom, uh, I'm a big Federer fan. I'm a big big three fan mm-hmm. as well. I just enjoy watching him. Um, with uh, I remember being younger, and I'm not that old personally. I'm 24, so I don't remember okay. m- I don't remember much. I think the first final I remember was the 2008 final and everyone was going crazy in the Wimbledon final, mm-hmm. Fed and yeah. Rafa. And, um, you know, I followed off and on, off and on. I was a big Fed fan. I loved the rival- rivalry, respect to Djokovic. And, you know, I took a break from tennis for a little bit, my teenage years, but then I got back into it um, solely from because of uh, Federer and his run in 2017 where, you know, it looked like he was down and out. Everybody was counting him out. Uh, he's like, okay, everyone, he's going to retire. And he came back and won the when you know three majors in span of you know a year and a half and the sunshine double and i was like oh my gosh and so i kind of you know dove back into it kind of and he was like the spark um when, when did it start uh, with you
2: as far as just supporting the big three
1: yeah yeah like you know uh, following them you know it, being interested in their stats their success their numbers
2: uh i've always yeah, I mean, when I started watching tennis it was 2006. The first major final I remember watching was 2006 Australian Open Final, which was Federer against Baghdadis, mm-hmm. um, you know, all throughout high school. Um, and then college, I, was, I, you know, I had my own personal Twitter account. And I created I, – I would tweet a lot of stats from that account, but that was more about tennis in general, and it was a lot broader. And then I just essentially cycled that or just funneled that into a page about the big three. Uh, and I've always been interested in the stats and, you know, what the stats show and, you know, the stories that the stats uh, convey. Um, and yeah, so it's really fun. There's still, stat- I'm always like, now i like, you know, I, I-, I use a-, a resource called Tennis Abstract very frequently, which I cannot say more things about, about how unbelievable this is as a resource. If you're listening to this podcast and have never checked it out, you should go on a Tennis Abstract uh, created by, this guy named Jeff Sackman. I mean, it's a brilliant website. And, um, you'd like, let's say you type in Djokovic, you will find any conceivable stat that you would want to know. You're going to find on this website. Uh, so essentially you can track like everything by year. You can track level. You can track, oh, what did Djokovic do in Masters 1000 events when he lost the first set? Uh, what did he do against one handed backhanders in Grand Slams on clay? So there's just so many things that you can find, so many cool stats, head to head, just anything you could think of, you're going to find on this, and that's helped me a lot with with the Twitter account uh, to find really cool stats.
0: With, um, a, are you a fan of one over the other, or you just love all three? I mean, or do you?
2: Yeah, I mean, everyone asks me that. So, I mean, to be honest, when I was first growing up playing tennis, my dad. Was a Federer fan, so I started, you know, liking Federer because my dad liked Federer. You know, throughout high school, I would say I was more of a Federer fan, and then when I started coaching, that's when I really stopped being so much of a fan and really started thinking more about like, okay, what are they doing, uh, technically, tactically, mentally, and really starting examining that side. And my, 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 my I, I just began to appreciate all of them. And yeah, um, there, I mean, there's things that all of them have done that I love and there's things that all of them have done that I'm not a huge fan of. And at this point it's just like, uh, you know, I'm pretty neutral about the whole thing. And I think i have also tried to become more neutral as I've had this Twitter page.
0: With why do you think they've been so successful? Why haven't others been able to break in?
2: Mm, great. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think if you, you know, what I just thought of is this match that Djokovic played against Rublev on Saturday. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, where it was, you know, Rublev played unbelievable and Djokovic was sick, not feeling 100%, played a long match the day before. And it looked like Rublev had a good chance of, of winning and Djokovic just, you know, was better in the end. And I think one thing I thought about in the match is just how many long baseline points that Rublev played with Djokovic and his unwillingness to move forward. You know, he's able to end some of these long baseline rallies with big shots, but then as you do it, trying to do it for several hours and different thing doing it in the first set than it is in the third set. So I think that's one big reason is lack of willingness to change tactics. It's like, okay, you're playing Djokovic and Jim and Ryan and I have talked about this a ton and you're playing this, guy who's clearly and you can say the same for Nadal and Federer who's clearly better than everyone else from the baseline and everyone tries to beat them at what they're good at they don't try to bring them in they don't try to come in um there's definitely a lack of, of variety thrown at them like Gasquet he's like whatever three and 50 against them combined and he you, you've never seen him try anything different and uh I've loved watching Gasquet but like Watching him against these, these three, it's been it's been you know a huge struggle. So I think that's one reason. I think also with Djokovic, his technique has just become so strong, um, and uh, so solid. Every single shot, maybe except overhead, uh, but like every shot has become so solid. The improvement of his serve, the improvement of his forehand. I just think that in a long in long matches, you just need to have something that is repeatable match in match out seven matches two weeks and Djokovic has that and of course Nadal and Federer had that as well um and they just had more ways to win they just had more ways to win and their opponents failed to to come up with creative ways to 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 diffuse what what they were doing um you know not everyone had like 150 mile hour serve like Andy Roddick so you know winning matches against these sides w- was so difficult and I just I, I would, I would say the number one cause outside of the fact of how good they are is just lack of willingness to to do something different.
0: Yeah, Vic Braden used to say that Bjorn Borg was a better Velas, and And if, if you play the guy 20 times um, and you just don't make it a baseline to baseline match, um, with, um, yeah, they're not going forward. Um, say, well, I got to take my chances against these guys. Um, if someone's a better baseline or another Bradenism is, is you might as well just mail in the scores. If you're playing somebody who's better than you from the baseline and that's your only option, you know? Yeah. Again, just mail in the scores. The match is over is that you've got to, I uh, like what you said, try something different.
2: Yeah. This is a very highly debated thing on the, on my Twitter page. Cause when I post this and I post it frequently, people get annoyed by it, but cause they're like, Oh, is that your only thing? And what they say is, you know, if you go to the net, they're going to pass you. And I'm like, well, if you don't do it, you're never going to know. And a lot of these players aren't even giving it an attempt. And secondly, it's like, all right, well, maybe you still will lose, but at least you're not going to lose in the same way that every single other player did. Um, And at least you're going to make the game look a little bit different to these guys who are so comfortable with the same patterns on the baseline over and over and over.
0: I think it was Federer. I don't think there's anyone who's been more quoted than Roger Federer. And I know that he said one of the reasons to start the Labor Cup, you know, one of many, uh, one to pay tribute to Rod Laver and players from the past. You know, he he said that you know he he told his agent Tony Gottsick, that I make more money in one exhibition than he made in his whole career. But (laughs) but to have the Labor Cup to help the younger players, um, he also said that. And one of the reasons they've done so well, he's actually said that is that people don't go forward. He also said, uh, "This is almost verbatim." Uh, it's frightening how low the level of play is at Wimbledon. I know that less than two percent of the time my opponents are coming in behind their serve. Um.
2: Yeah, well, a great stat there is that you know in the um, two in the two thousand one Wimbledon match between Federer and Sampras, you know they the serve in volley was just used nonstop. Um, I forget the exact number that Sampras served and volleyed against Federer, but you can imagine that it was a lot. And then in the match against Djokovic in 2019 at Wimbledon, Djokovic served and volleyed, I believe, zero times. And Maybe it was one. It was either one or zero. Uh, And it just shows you the difference in in the way the game is played. And, you know, another argument I hear about this is, oh, well, the players aren't good enough to come to the net. And I'm like, yeah, because they're not coming to the net. They're not going to just start in one match and suddenly be amazing at it. They've got to they, start somewhere, right? Um, so, yeah. I mean, there was a guy earlier this year at Wimbledon, actually Jordan Thompson, Australian player, who came to the net a ton against Djokovic at Wimbledon, and he did lose in straight sets, but one of the sets was 7-6, the other set was 7-5. And they were very highly competitive sets, and he was really pushing Djokovic. Um, and it was really entertaining to watch as well. And it was just like, I, I just don't get, you know, if everyone's everyone's watching this, how are they not implementing this same strategy or at least trying to do it, you know, more often. Not saying you have to go to the net every single shot, every point, but do it more than you are now.
0: Nick, did any stats come to your mind with, you know, being fortunate enough to have a win over the, one of the big three for three sets versus five sets? I think it's always... The okay, again,
2: you know, say it say in, again.
0: Any stats... Uh, I would I would guess, just off the top of my head, it's it's much easier to have a win over one of the top three players, mm-hmm. the big three, in a three-set match versus a five-set match, a major.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd have to look how many losses they each have. Obviously, you know, five-setters are, are being played way less frequently, so they're naturally going to have less. But I think kind of what we're saying kind of speaks to the fact that this strategy of trying to, like, rip ground strokes you'll have more chance of winning a match in a three set match than a five set match um i think one a good recent example of this was 50 pots at the french open in in 2019 or excuse me 2021 in the final against Djokovic, where he won the first two sets and then lost in five sets and it's just like at a certain point Djokovic from the baseline is going to break you down um, and Djokovic has won, you know, a few five centers against. He won against Team in five sets. Um, in the Australian Open one year, he won that match against Siti pots in five sets. And just you know, in the long run, they're just they're just going to break you down from the baseline. Um, particularly, I would say more so breaking breaking you down is more so the case from um, Nadal and uh, Nadal and Djokovic. You know, one interesting thing is that Federer, as I believe, that Federer against Nadal and Djokovic in matches that last, um, under two hours is he has, it's a resounding record. He's got a much better record, but when the match goes over two hours, he's losing most of them. Ma- I, I, I don't have, I don't have the stat for me, but he's losing most of the matches against Nadal and Djokovic. Um, so I think that's one interesting dynamic within, you know, the, the, you know, the trio itself.
0: Um, let's go with some uh, technical points. Um, uh... E- evolution of yeah. Nadal's forehand
2: yeah I mean Jim and I I did a, I was starting a big three podcast a few years ago I only did like a few episodes um, but one was with Jim and we talked about Nadal's forehand and talked about how in recent years on, on the term he started to open the racket face pretty significantly and you know questioning you know against most players it's probably not going to be you know a difference maker, but when you play against the way Federer was playing in 2017, taking the ball so early, hitting it so deep, playing against Djokovic, whose backhand is just un- pretty much unbreakable most of the time and could create so much gap, especially in those cross-court rallies, uh, it really makes you wonder if Nadal had kept the same forehand that he had when he first came on tour, would he have been more successful against those two guys later on in his career? I mean, he's lost I believe the last eleven matches he's played against both of them off clay, you know, on faster surfaces, and that, in my opinion, this forehand change in forehand technique is definitely has something to definitely do with it.
1: What do what your what's your opinion about on the topic of Rafa? Um, your opinion on him standing so far back? You know, we we see other players, you know, follow suit, Medvedev and Rude. Um, mm-hmm. What's your opinion on, of him starting to stand, or he started? I guess you can say a lot of people have before, but he's known for standing really far back.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's on clay. You can't argue what he's done. Of course, I think on hard court and grass, that's where the bigger questions can be asked of whether that return positioning is is you know the right choice. Uh, again, I think really against most players, it's not really going to make the difference most of the time but when you're playing Nadal excuse me, when you're playing Djokovic and Federer I think that's when you really have to start asking questions because if you don't if you give them a short ball you're going to be in trouble um, and your ability to withstand the next shot is going to be much tougher um, so yeah I mean I think you know I, I think it's, it's good to use it against certain opponents but it, you know if I was coaching Nadal not that that would ever happen but if I was coaching Nadal I would say like look if you're playing Federer or Djokovic you gotta try to, you gotta try to hold the baseline as much as possible and I think he's played his best in, in, in the past when he's aggressive I've always said with Nadal I think when he's aggressive that's when he's his best even on clay when he routed Djokovic in the 2020 French Open final he was extremely aggressive and if you're starting that far back in return yeah you're, just gonna, you're probably making it a lot harder to be aggressive
0: I loved it when Nadal was asked, How do you beat Nadal? And he said, That's easy.
1: Djokovic, how do you beat Djokovic?
0: No, that's another c- comment. But Nadal was asked, How do you beat Nadal? And he said, uh, That's easy. Don't miss and be super aggressive. <laughs> but but yeah. uh, what Ivan brought up is Nadal was asked, He lost seven times in a row to Djokovic. And he said, what's, what's the difference? He goes, It's simple. He goes, He used to play three meters beyond the baseline. Now he's playing one meter beyond the baseline. I, I love to li- I love to listen to uh, what the pros say. I think of the late Welby Van Horn. He was always asking people. He would just meet people and say, "Hey, how do you think you develop a tennis mind?" Um, I do think that's one thing with uh, say Rublev, and I thought it was very nice when just the other day uh, the match you mentioned, Djokovic, and he had been ill and he came back and and Rublev he he, he was so close to winning. In that courtside interview, Djokovic has, you know, excused himself and stepped over and consoled uh, Rublev who was in tears. Um, you know, Rublev, is a, he's, he's approved so much. I remember being in a challenger and some of the guys were going, oh, that guy's going to burn out. I go, I don't think so. He was like 17. He was at uh, T-Bar M in Dallas and he was pumping mm-hmm. iron. And anytime a court opened up, he just went all through the player lounge asking somebody to practice. He was just tennis animal. He's, he's improved so much. But don't you think those guys get so close and then it's like, you know, then maybe, yes, I, I could beat one of these guys.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it, I think that's the demoralizing part for so many of them is to feel like they're so close um, and, and to not win. And, um, you know, someone like Dimitrov who Djokovic played in the final had such a good week and then he comes to the final and he just doesn't play his best tennis and also having to face Djokovic it's just like, wow, I just beat like five of the best players in the world. Now I have to play someone who's 20 times better than all of them and uh, do it again one day later. And um, I think that's what so many so many have run into that issue uh, over the years. But going back real quick to the um, Djokovic improvement, to me, the big thing that Djokovic really changed from earlier in his career is how many more backhands he hit. Because I think you watch a lot of these earlier matches and all he's doing is running around his backhand and just trying to club forehands and just crush the forehand over and over and over. And he used to just try to annihilate the forehand. And nowadays, you never see that. Of course, you know, his backhand is his best shot. And um I think that was a huge improvement that he made. And uh, I think probably that probably helped him with his stamina as well, not trying to run around forehands. I think of Jack who like, wouldn't or Tommy Robredo, just these guys who just wanted to run around their backhand all day and just like the level of like fitness that that had to take to exert that much effort to constantly run around the forehand shot after shot after shot and the quality of shot needed to do so, whereas Djokovic can just sit there and just hit his backhand and do so many things with it. I think that was like a big improvement that he made. And obviously he also improved his forehand technique as well to, you know, do what you said, Steven, and, and get closer to the baseline, take the ball earlier as well.
0: And just by taking the ball earlier, I mean, he, he used to on his forehand, his racket face would be, you know, facing the back fence and it's, they have, he has, he has changed that. Um, What about uh, evolution of Nadal's backhand? Your thoughts on that? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the main thing that I saw from him over his career is that he's just shortened the swing. Um, You know, he used to have the take back that was very identical to his forehand where it was just, you know, he starts in the ready position, t- takes the racket back, you know, on on edge, you know, 180 degrees, close the racket face, and then, you know, he swings inside out, and that's it. Now he has more, you know, he goes down, he has a little bit of a reset on certain backhands. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I've always felt like his backhand was the shot that was, obviously, it's not going to be as potent as the forehand, but it also was probably a little more reliable. Uh, you know, he's always great at hitting it sharp cross-court when he steps in and hit, is wanting to hit those angles. It's always been a, a great shot for him. Um, but I don't think... I, I think the change he made on his backhand was not really... I don't think it had too much impact on his career.
0: For our listeners, the, the term reset, um, the, that means the player takes the racket low and resets it. They bring it back up high, correct? Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Yeah, um, exactly.
0: How about Djokovic with his serve? I know at one time he... Uh, And he has, you know, he has opened himself up to work with many, many coaches. He was working with Todd Martin at one time. And um, at that time, uh, perhaps it wasn't Todd Martin, but it didn't go so well. Um, What are your thoughts on his serve? I mean, you used to really have a palm up.
2: Yeah, I mean, I did a post sometime last year, the year before. That was like one of my most well-received posts ever, most shares, views, whatever. about the evolution of his serve, and like you said, you know, it was palm up, and um, his toss was really high. Uh, like it was really, really high. Uh, just like so many, so many things that were that were problematic. And um, yeah, nowadays, I think you know, you see that his serve is so simple. Um, I see that he's you know he's gotten into you know what you've referred to Steve over the years in, in, into the cobra position. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like that's something that's even different than it was from 2015, where his serve was already a lot better, but now he's adding things to it. I've noticed in the last couple years the toss is further into the court. I did a post yesterday showing how much further he's tossing in the court now than he was in 2015. I went to the U.S. Open in 2021 in fact court side, probably like 10th row, but I was on the side of the court and, like, just – See, it was noticeable how much further his toss was in the court than everyone else. That was like the most striking thing to me, how much t- more into the court he was tossing. And you watch these matches now, and he just wins so many three points off his serve, and it doesn't look like he's doing anything. He looks so relaxed. It's very much like what Federer did throughout his career. Um, maybe not to quite the same effect, but like it, it's getting close. And To think about where he was in 2009, 2010, it's pretty incredible to see the evolution of that of of that shot now you know he's palm down over his head there's really not his elbows further back um he's just doing everything so much better
0: you know i think the term hitting spots was always brought up with with roger but djokovic it's amazing under pressure where he can just and he's just so accurate as far as placing his serve
2: Mm -hmm. yeah it's incredible i mean it's incredible you know and i think as he gets older when he plays matches, it's gonna you know help him. What he's you know he's uh, what thirty six now, and um, you know if he if this guy's gonna be like Tom Brady and play till he's eighty, you know <laughs> I think winning three points off the serve is gonna be is gonna be very helpful.
0: Well, I mean from the service line in, he's he's, he's improved so much. Uh, it just keeps getting better. <laughs> As far yeah. as as far as the goat, yeah, I don't really like that conversation. But he probably is the goat when it comes to nutrition and flexibility. I heard his wife say he's either stretching or thinking about stretching.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean the flex. Yeah, I mean the the defense he's able to play even now. Like he looks more athletic than everyone else. Maybe Alcaraz is right there and Jenner, but like other than that, um, I mean his his athleticism is insane.
0: Somewhere in our library, I have a film of him stretching when he's seventeen years old. He's been he's been on top of that for a long time. I know in the players' lounges, like at Indian Wells or U.S. Open places, I've seen him. Uh, you would think people would copy him? I mean, they say, he, of course, you know, he's got somebody to, you know, go run some errands for him or you know, go bring his meals to him, and um, but just just a, he's Gumby. He's just Spider Man.
2: Well, that's, it's funny that you mentioned like why don't people copy him and I think this brings up an interesting point it's I think he's made so many changes to his game technically physically um tactically and I feel like so many pros you see them play for so many years and just nothing changes yet you see Djokovic who's made so many changes and I hear a lot I feel like a lot of people think that once you get to that level oh well that's what got you there well it's like, okay that's what you got you to number 25 but now there's a reason that you're not number one and this dude is because he's willing to make the changes and you're not. Um, and to me, that's like a really striking thing to see players who we see like obvious fundamental flaws in their game. I think a good example of one player who fixed it was Chilich, where he had that extremely high ball toss. He was six six and not getting enough power on a serve. He lowered the ball toss. Boom. Suddenly he starts hitting bigger serves. Wins the U.S. open and. I think there's a thought in my, from what I can tell, from a lot of pros and like people who watch tennis, watch pro tennis, that you that these pros either cannot change or that they shouldn't change, and that what they've got is what they've got.
0: I think with silich that's a great point. At one Time Fetter said in an interview, they're asking about Silich and he said before he changed his serve or after he changed his serve, I would I would have <laughs> just guessed. Yeah, that. right. I one time uh, was it Indian Wells and. I was meeting with uh, two students, Austin Krejcik and Raven and about retirement with early career, you know, post-career time. And um, mm-hmm. it was Ivanisevich and silich and they, they were practicing, like, all day, the same thing over and over again. But he did change his, his um, serve. I think also, too, with Goran, I recently read where – you know, he says he gets a phone call, you know, the day is done and it's, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And Jogarich calls him up and says, I wasn't hitting my backhand very good today. I need to hit more backhands. And, you know, Goring goes, because I don't think he missed one backhand. He said, you know, <laughs> and, and he openly thanks his his team for putting up with him because he drives them crazy. But uh, no, it's just may, amazing the work ethic.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, so I was at the U.S. Open this year at the practice, And I sat on Arthur, you know, in the practice qualifying rounds, you can go into Arthur Ashe, sit front row and just sit there all day for free. So I went there and sat there for five or six hours. By far, Djokovic was not saying that the others weren't serious or whatever, but Djokovic by far was the most serious. He was by far the most, the player who was most, it felt like he was actually playing a match. And, you know, if everything wasn't exactly precise about what was going on, he let his team know about it right away. And you could just tell how serious he was about what was happening in that practice. For one instance was like, he was ready to serve and no one had a ball. And he was like, okay, well, where's the ball? Like, there's so many people on the court. I need the ball now. And like, you know, this is, we all know, this is what creates the champions to have that type of mentality and type of work ethic.
0: I read an article where, um, the the author, he 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 stalked uh, the big three, and just observed, and they didn't use their cell phones. And then he he, he took on you know he observed three younger players, and you know they'd be in the weight room, and they they would do an exercise, do the reps, go to their phone, go do another exercise, go to their phone. And I see that all the time with the juniors I work with. It just it's like a third arm. They just can't get rid of rid of the phone. But
2: yeah, yeah, hundred percent
0: that expression, all business. Um, but no, again, even volleying uh, one year at the Australian open, um, you thank Mr. Labor for being courtside. And he said, I'm, I know I'm supposed to come to the net more and I'm working at it. Um. So I, I, I think, you know, you definitely with, with Federer, you know, he, he has an Australian influence with Peter Carter and then going back mm-hmm. uh, in, it was Peter Carter first and then uh, Tony Roach. And the Aussies, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you talk to an Aussie, they still think, and they with what they accomplished in the fifties and sixties, that Australia is still the best tennis nation ever. And uh, mm-hmm. but I think that the appreciation of history, um, uh, Djokovic is right in there as well.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, look, I think statistically you can't really argue anything at this point about who's the best. I mean, it's just pretty. To me, it's just pretty objective at this point. You look at pretty much every metric and he's ahead um, and it's tough to really you know as far as like who's the greatest of all time if you're going to use statistics right now I, I would say it has to has to be him at the moment I don't really see what else, obviously what would be changing that anytime soon either
0: I don't want to forget character either with uh, I love the line of Jimmy Connors I think he said it looks like Nadal he's got no money and he's playing for launch money um, who, who said that Connor said about VLAN Connor said about um, Nadal that he oh. looks like he's broke, and he's playing for lunch money.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. But, but a nice story
0: yeah. about Nadal. At one time, he was supposed to hit with Launder. I think it was two thousand eight, and it rained during the, the time they were supposed to hit. And he stayed afterwards, and he called him up, and said, "Hey, I'll hit with the Monday." You know, he stayed the next Monday to hit with VLander. So, I think in this young kid, Alcaraz, I do think that they all have appreciation for the past.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think. uh, you have to realize with the big three, it's just like this. It's unlikely that you're going to see in any era like this again with three players of this caliber.
0: How about the Fed? Talk to, to us about Fed in the forehand.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like throughout his career, it's been a shot where I think people obviously know how you know aesthetically pleasing it's been, but then if you watch an entire match in certain matches there's points where like, okay, this shot can break down a bit. Um, and this shot, you know, against Djokovic and it all specifically, um, has definitely cost him in certain moments. You know, it's given him, it's like live by the sword, die by the sword with the forehand. Um, and, you know, as far as technically, technically speaking, I think as his career has, progressed he he started to drop the racket you know more inside his hand uh than he did earlier in his career where you know when he would you know take the racket back and drop it it would be kind of more closer to the to the back fence and now it would be like more closer to the net where you know now it's like or when he was finishing his career it was to the side of him and i felt like i always watch him like man that's like a lot of free stretch and a lot of lag and under pressure with like a smaller racket and a smaller frame. Um, I, I, you know, you question if he had stuck with the four and he had in like 2006 um, and then maybe use a, a slightly bigger head, would that have allowed him to be more consistent? Um, yeah, as a, as a, you know,
1: as a, fed fan sorry to interrupt this, I completely agree. Yeah. I used to watch older matches um, 20,000, you know, when he had that final streak where he was in like 12 finals in a row or whatever it was, it was, his forehand i mean so circular it was it's very different forehand in the mm-hmm. 2004 5 6 7 maybe even 8 um um era of his when he had that long stretch of being number 1 his forehand was different it was very circular he didn't have that ballistic type swing where he kind of lagged and snapped it was very and i and i feel like a, one of my favorite matches to rewatch is his um when he beat um Agassi in the US Open Agassi's last match yeah I mean, Such a good it's, it's a great match. It's a great match. It's forehand. I mean, it's, it's just look at it. It's circular. I mean, it's, there is very, it was the, like
2: Agassi. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: One thing with, uh, Vic Braden, uh, if I could just say one thing, and I, and I think I'm right in the corner of people who say so many great things about Vic Braden is I used to travel and do all these clinics with Vic and early on, um, I would be inside doing the video and Vic would be outside, you know, he'd do one of those traveling clinics. In fact, Jim Klein told a story where he first worked with Vic. I was called up and Vic needed somebody to help him at the Doylestown Tennis Club. And, and Mm I, I sent Vic, I sent Jim and, uh, it, it was many, many years ago. And the same thing happened. Jim was inside doing the video, but as the years went by, Vic stayed inside and did the video and I'd be outside running the courts but he, he used the term pre-stretch, like I say with Sampras did it, Agassi for sure on the forehand side. It helps them keep the bracket on the same side of their body, and they they, they lift their elbow and they do add another segment. And it, it's uh, mm-hmm. I remember one of Jim's juniors. Uh, I'm think think for a second. Uh, Jared Jared Solomon. Yeah, yeah, and, Jared. Uh, yep. Yeah. With uh, you know, you, you know, he's training with us with the idea to go on and play college tennis. So I was a, he he's a good tennis player. And I just, um, I think some of those things evolve. I think for the listeners, for the parents, you know, if you've got a child who's nine years old and you're asking about a pre-stretched forehand, um, I I think that there's, there's, there's a danger. There's a red flag to uh, trying to interpret what the very best players do. Um, Mm -hmm. I I use the analogy where if you went to a, a jazz concert and, Someone's playing the saxophone, you go up and you ask that person. how do you do that? how do you hit that one note? Not that I know it, not that I know anything about music, but they don't they're not going to intellectualize. They're not going to articulate how they play the saxophone. They've just been playing it. you just think about the amount of myelin that adds up and the timing that the players have, you know, the ten thousand hour rule, um the late Andres Eikson, the Swede, who was a professor at Florida State you know, the building of myelin is, you know, three hours a day for a year is a thousand hours. And you just think of the myelin that, uh, the, you know, you'd pick out any of the big three. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, like, you know, how they use their hands when the you know there's a serve that's hit wide at 130 miles an hour. I mean, how do they do what they do? Um, but I think that's because of the, of the evolution and what they did, all those steps through, uh, you know just like any tennis player from playing the tens to the 12s and and on
2: well <laughs> I actually think the
0: I'm sorry, oh, sorry what I was going to say I just remember uh with this young kid Solomon at the time it was you know he's probably doubled in age by by now but it was like oh yeah we do not need to be talking about a pre-stretch forehand you know it's just it's, mm-hmm. um you know I would say that it was probably with, true with ninety percent of the people I coach. Is uh, no, no. Let's let's stay with the fundamentals. Let's stay with basics. Um, mm-hmm. we, we don't need to, we need to be inspired by the the big three, but we don't need to be copycats of the big three. If we're going to copy anything, it would be their work ethic. And you know, yeah, just like I said with uh, Djokovic, let's start stretching some more. You know,
1: let's yeah, or, yeah. There's only like, oh, sorry, I'm on. Oh, I was gonna say, or start uh, looking at how they. Um, played when they were younger from like, especially we're still on the topic of fetter. Um, you know, I, I fall into that camp. I'm, I'm to blame. I look at, you know, YouTube videos. Okay. How does this lag and snap work? What's this about? And you know, when I'm, and you know, I want to copy the pros cause that's what I'm watching on TV. And that's what kids are nowadays with their, their YouTube and stuff. And you just look at highlights and they slow-mo this one big shot they hit when they open up and lag and snap. And it's like, Oh, I want to do that. And um, juniors should, you know, look to st- copy pros when they were their age. So if a junior is eight years mm-hmm. old, okay, what was Fed doing when he was eight, when he was 12, what is he doing yeah. 12? And, um, I guarantee you, um, that, uh, Fed had, um, circular swings and long follow throughs when he was young.
0: Well, I sent a video just today. It, it was a film of, uh, Roger Federer. hitting as a 12 year old and I was asked, does he have a Western grip? And I think that the, the, uh, 45 second clip. I think that the film, the, the, they showed the player from the back angle. And I think that was his opponent. I don't think it was him. And it was like, I think it's, again, it's great for fans to have passion. And, you know, there's, there's a danger to YouTube research. Um, You know, in other words, well, I'm going to look at this clip and it's, it's one shot. You don't know the, the tactical situation. You don't even know if they made the shot, depending on what the angle was. Um,
2: with uh yeah well, go ahead yeah the youtube yeah i was gonna say well the one thing is with the um the pre-stretch i feel like for me personally it's something that i you know discussed with jim as i was as i was trying to become a better coach and started teaching better players you know i would act yeah, because you know it's something that i would never teach because i felt you know most of the players that i would teach just weren't ready for it and you know came a yeah, it came to a point where it's like all right you got to find someone who is like insanely talented and athletic um, and who's ready to, you know, um, just start swinging a little bit faster when you maybe start introducing it in a very minor way. Um, But certainly not in the, in the, in the realm of what Federer was doing, you know, later on in his career. And I think probably with like with the adults that I teach, I think, you know, most of the people I teach, they come like once or twice a week. So it's, you know, I don't have time to, teach them an extremely, extremely difficult thing, like things that the pros are doing um, and expect them to learn it quickly. Um, so I think that also factors into that. And I would say the one thing that I see people copying the most from the big three and the technique is we have we had a clinic that we were running, um, one-handed backhand clinic. It was all one-handed backhand for an hour. And, um, you know, we would drill for like 35 minutes and then do rallying. For the the rest of the class, and I would say uh, maybe eighty percent of the people came in trying to hit their backhand like Federer, most specifically, but not copying the part of Federer's backhand that was the best, which in my opinion was the follow through, but copying the the take back where the racket is so open in the backswing, where you compare to Wawrinka, where it's much more neutral and then closed, where Federer like barely gets his racket closed, but it's Federer. He you know he he's Roger Federer you're taking a lesson with me. So, um, these are two very different things that are happening and I see so many people with this, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen it with this open racket based take back. Cause the, and you know, a handful of told me, yeah, I watched better. I learned it from better. I watched better do this.
0: Yeah. That's weird. Uh, so fortunate to spend time with Vic, uh, uh, Braden, uh, you know, Vic Braden, the man, there's great. I think it's fantastic that people do such a great job with Vic Braden, the resource. But Vic used to say, I'm a toad, you're a toad, we're all toads. Roger's not a toad, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? Exactly, yep, yep, yeah. yep,
0: 100%. With, um, yeah, Roger at times would, you know, let the risk go too early, but he certainly would make some unforced errors, but he got to the point where he could make a mistake, just look right at it. But the thing about being aggressive and it's kind of like Michael Jordan, give me the ball and I'll shoot again. You know, it's not like he, it wasn't like he got tentative. He would just keep taking some good cracks at the ball.
2: 100%.
1: I got a, I got a question for you. You know, Rafa has struggled with some injury um, here. Mm-hmm. So Nick, in your opinion, he's come back uh, for his last year is what they say is what he said. Uh, what, what, How do you like his chances? Do you think he's going to do well or?
2: Yeah, I mean, geez, it's, it's, it's so tough to, to say. I mean, like, look, Murray Murray had the big hip surgery, hip replacement. Um, you know, Nadal's not exactly the same, but um, I, I don't know if the bigger issue is coming back from the injury or the fact that when he comes back, he's going to be dealing with Alcaraz, Djokovic, Sinner, Medvedev, who I think all at various points of this year, of course, Djokovic and Alcaraz more so, played at very high levels um so to come back and then maybe just have like one more year on the tour um you know i'm not going to count rafa out but i do think there there is a significant uphill battle now at the same time if you told me in if you told me all right rafa wins the french open next year i would be surprised but i wouldn't i would be surprised but i'm like all right it's rafa at the end of the day like he he overcame injury and then and won another Grand Slam. I wouldn't be like totally stunned. I would just be like, okay, wow, that was insanely impressive what this guy did. Where it seemed like his career might be over, and then he comes back and wins another Grand Slam. Kind of what he what Federer did in 2017.
0: Yeah, you know, at one time uh, Sampras, you know, said, "Gee." Uh, I, I really like to play Nadal, and he finally saw Nadal in person. And he said, "Wow, he's so much better than I thought he would be." Well, you know, a lot of times in junior tennis, if a kid has an extreme grip on the forehand side, people say, "Well, just slice, mm-hmm. keep the keep the ball low." But mm-hmm. you, you really don't want to do that because you're 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 hitting a minus, and they can step up and hit a plus. What well, what's best mm-hmm. against somebody who has an extreme grip is coming in and volleying to it because we, mm-hmm. if, especially the way Sampras could drive a volley. Is trajectory, as you know, is what keeps the ball low. So if somebody drives a volley, but as Vic would say, um, people don't have the options. You know, it'd be nice to, you're playing somebody who's, like say um, years ago, Michael Chang and Stefan Edberg in the uh, French Open final. Um, v. Launder said so many great things about Federer, loves Federer, you know, and it was taken out of context because um Wielander said, you know, he was chicken because he, he didn't go forward enough, but if they listened to the, people listened to the whole spiel that Wielander had on Federer, it was so, so positive, but Federer's own numbers. Um, I go back and I think the first time they played it was Federer came in at the, at the French Federer Nadal Federer came in 17% of the points and one seventy three, 73, something like that. And it's like, well, okay, simple math. Says, uh, you know, go in more, lose less, but you're still going to end up winning the match. But uh, you know, Fetter himself said that you know I I I like my forehand better than I like my volleys. I mean, I'd love to listen to what people say, what what Fetter says. Um, I remember Leighton Hewitt said, "I have no, I have no approach zone. I have no transition game." That's what he said about his own game. But mm-hmm. F- Fetter, um was asked about Edberg, and he said, "Why don't you go to the net more?" It was like Edberg did. And he said, "If I could volley like Edberg, I would." Um, yeah. It's just really interesting what the what the players what the players say. Like Andy Roddick said one time, Roger Federer's an artist, a technician. I just hit the crap out of the ball.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the Federer backhand volley is you know an example of like, all right, what Federer can hit these backhand volleys with a like, like a very steep downward swing and make it work. Um, but you, as someone who's learning tennis, you know, at core 16, or even me, Nick Nemirov, who's, you know, barely a 5.0 player, I can't do that regularly. Uh, I just don't have, you know, the gifts that Federer has to be able to, you know, pull that off, um, repeatedly. Um, so that's another example of of what you were saying earlier, Steve, Of you know, you've got to, you know, watch the pros, but also be very careful of, of what you're trying to, to copy from them and also going on YouTube and watching 10 different things and um, trying to source your information out from 10 different places is is a very tricky thing. Um, And something that I personally advise people that I teach, like, Hey, if you're going to follow something, try to follow one thing, try not to hear three different things from three different coaches.
0: I think with uh, Nadal compared to Federer and Djokovic, Nadal, it's like, you know, it's like he came from a soccer family. You know, he came from the backboard, he came from hitting with Uncle Tony, you know, he um he, he came from Mallorca, he came from the island, and you know, the exposure. Um, I think that soccer mentality, you know, I think mean, Djokovic said it best when he asked about Alcaraz. He said that uh, he thinks he has the best of all of, all three, that he has his own foundation. It's pretty much mm-hmm. how he said it. you know, then he said he has the finesse of Better and then he has the warrior mentality of, of nadal what are your thoughts on that
2: yeah i mean he's extremely talented clearly uh he has probably more power than probably all three of them um though yeah i mean i think with alcaraz what i see as being alcaraz's biggest obstacles one is that i think sometimes well what i think he needs to develop is just playing with a bit more control at times. Sometimes I think he is two guns ablazing, and sometimes he needs to play with a little bit more restraint, put a few more balls deep cross court instead of trying to run around a backhand and rip the next forehand. Sometimes I think he goes too big too often. Uh, clearly his mechanics are, are, are very strong. Um, and though the one, the one thing that I am not as big of a fan of with him even though it works is his serve where he uh, stops at the top of the swing, um, kind of like Cameron Norrie. Yeah. Uh, and he just pauses there and obviously he can still hit a huge serve, but it makes me question, all Right, if he does this for, you know, five, seven more years, what kind of impact is that going to have on his arm um, where he's not creating the power as easily as someone like Djokovic, who has a much more fluid, continuous motion, uh, who's talking the ball lower, Who's tossing further into the court? Um, and I think, of course, you know when we talk about these players and we're giving them, I guess, a little bit of criticism here. You know, we're talking about obviously the best players in the world, but I still think even with them, they all realize, oh wait, there's still room to get better. Um, but yeah, he has, you know, he obviously has a great mentality. I just think there's some things as far as shot selection uh, and shot choice that he needs to improve on, um, and I think. Uh, when Djokovic is not here, he's obviously going to be the guy to beat.
1: Yeah. With, uh, there's another player, young player out there. Um, since we're on the topic of younger outside the big three, um, Holger, mm-hmm. Holger Rune Rune. Um, yeah, I saw him play in Paris and, you know, he has, I believe, uh, Becker in his corner now. And mm-hmm. he, uh, it looked like he changed his forehand. He was swinging up above his head a lot. And, um, I don't know. It looked like he was not hmm. playing as well off his forehand side. I don't know if you saw that. I just. I, I just, did not notice that. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but I was just, I was caught in. I'm like, because before it was very interesting. watching him hit his forehand. He'd have a very quick unit turn. He would just set up mm-hmm. his racket. He'd wait, 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 and just, you know, explode onto the ball. And, the rack would
2: be very... You're saying the difference is the follow-through more so?
1: Um, a little bit of both. But I, what was noticeable to me was the follow-through where he'd wrap it over his head you know, mm-hmm. 75% of the time, um, whereas before, he, I don't think I ever saw him doing one. So just different technical changes. I'm interested if maybe Becker, that was Becker's influence. I don't know.
0: Well, I think what happens with players at the high level, the ball comes deeper, comes faster, and the frequency, the consistency. And I think players... Uh, over time, they, they make refinements in their game. I mean, if you were to look at Montfis, I mean, pe- people at the top, over time, they'll simplify their game. And I think also too, you come back to Milan, I was at a Challenger with Yvonne a couple of days ago. And you know, some of the players, uh, actually one player that I've coached since he was 11 and another player that I've watched play since he was 11. And there's others, you know, you just, if you're around those circles and one of the players, I mean, he's a huge guy, super aggressive, lefty big serve and um his, his, his mechanics haven't changed there's he's still inefficient but he has more myelin so the the greater the amount of myelin as far as motor programming the speed and the smoothness of movement so people are the the, the pattern of the racket's is very much the same but but they are smoother with their movements so yeah there are there are changes but i think with djokovic um of the big three, don't you think he's made the most changes?
2: Oh yeah, it's not even it's not even a question. I mean, Federer um, obviously made the change in 2017 to step in earlier on the back end, which was clearly an incredibly important and effective change, and he played so well that year. The big shame of that year was that Djokovic was playing very poorly that year, and they didn't really get to play each other. And uh, it would have been great to have seen them both at their best in that season. Um, that would have been a great match. was kind of, you know, playing so early and so aggressively uh, off the backhand. But yeah, Djokovic has definitely, definitely made the most changes uh, by, by a, a, a wide margin.
0: I think for the parents listening, one thing in 2017, um, Robert Fetter is, Roger Fetter said, my father was always right. He kept telling me I was chicken, just hit my backhand. But, yeah. the, but the story I heard from a friend of a friend, uh, Tony got um, friend of mine who lives up in Cleveland said that, uh, he, Tony told Roger some of, we said this before on our podcast, I'm sure is that, that he needed to use analytics. And Roger first said, no, it's too expensive. And Tony said, I'll pay for it. And then he said, ah, it's, I'll pay for it. But I don't want all those numbers in my head. But in the end he did use tennis analytics, um, you know, for our listeners going even deeper away from the big three is that analytics are great, but at the same time, I don't think that in junior tennis, the numbers for a grip, swing and body are used. I mean, it's like, okay, let's talk about stats and spin and this and that. But it's like, okay, let's go through what what developmental players need. But the word changes come up. Uh, Nick, what about the grass? If they didn't change the grass at Wimbledon, uh, don't you think uh, Sir Roger would have been uh, playing differently?
2: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, especially against his two biggest rivals. If he could quickly involve the net and then avoid these long baseline rallies, yeah, if if the courts were... I mean, I think one match I think about that shows what I think would have happened if more courts were playing faster was Federer and Djokovic played a match in Shanghai in um, 2014, and uh, Federer came to the net a ton, and he was serving and volleying a ton. And he won the match like 6-4, 6-3 against Djokovic. And it was one of his, the best matches that I've ever seen him play, uh, uh, period. And definitely, probably, uh, I have to think harder, but one of the best matches that he played against Djokovic. Um, and I'm looking it up right now, actually, to see. Here we go. Let's see. It'll show here. This is on tennis abstract. How many times that he, um, served and volleyed. So he served and volleyed 45 times. Uh, Erna, he went to the net. He served volley fifteen times. Went to the net forty-five times. Won twenty-five of those points. Um, so fifty-six percent. So he was, you know, which is more points than he would usually win at the baseline, right? And um, a higher percentage at least. And uh, yeah, I mean that point that match just it's just he was constantly moving. And then on the faster course that they played on in the past, like Veteran and Djokovic, Cincinnati and Dubai are the other ones that really come to mind. Going forward a ton and, and being aggressive a ton and was paying much more dividends, much harder for Djokovic to uh, get interest on his defensive shots and, and, and to really play the ball back deep uh, where Federer is struggling to, to play offensively on, on the next shot. So, yeah, not changing the change. It, if they had not changed the grass, it would have been, you know, different story for sure, I think, in, in a lot of these Wimbledon.
0: I've got some questions here. This is fun. Jim Klein. So you were 12 mm-hmm. years old when you met Jim?
2: I was, let's see, 2005, I was 12, yep.
0: And how old are you now? I'm 30. 30, old guy. So Old, 18,
2: yeah. Who, who knew I'm me, way older than Yvonne. <laughs>
0: who knew 18 years ago, or 18 years ago, that uh, we'd talk radio, this podcast forum, that we'd have questions mm-hmm. from uh, Jim Rogers asking, or excuse me, Jim Klein, senior moment. I know, I know a lot of, I'm a little older than 30. You and you and Yvonne added up. Uh, I'm older than both of you guys combined, (laughs) but from, uh, by a long ways, actually. (laughs) But, uh, Jim's one question here, what stats are the most important to you in trying to debate the goat?
2: Yeah. I
0: was thinking of that
2: before the podcast? podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think they're fairly obvious, but, um, you know, of course, Grand Slams 1 is going to be at the top. Week set number one, Djokovic is is pretty far ahead at this point. of Federer um, head-to-head, Djokovic is ahead of both um, wins. He has the most wins over the top 10. He has the most Masters 1000 events. Uh, he has won the World Tour Finals, the ATP Finals. He's won that six times, likely will win it a 7th uh, next week when that takes place. Um,
0: so I'd say those would be, those would be the main ones. I uh, read where, uh, some people are saying, well, uh, it's, uh, you know, who's done the most in, for tennis. Um, and then the, mm-hmm. one of the former players highly respected player was saying this, they're talking about the fed. And, uh, but boy, I tell you what, uh, I've met a lot of Serbians and it's just amazing what, uh, in, in, in all of them, but uh, what Djokovic has done for players from his country,
2: um, yeah, I think I think if the, if people are open minded to it, you know, obviously there's the three fan bases, and everyone's very supportive of the we can say for of the of the one that they like. And I think if you are open minded and you allow yourself to actually view these three players from an ad- objective point of view, there's so much to learn from all of them. I think you know, with Nadal, you're going to learn about. The, the the fighting mentality and, and the never give up mentality which i really think that can't be overstated i think even when he's down in a set 5-1-40 love he's playing the same point and i, I really think from djokovic and federer you've seen times where they get down in the set and they're going to tank the set not give up but just know like hey i'm going to reserve energy the doll you never see that um from djokovic i think what people should take away from djokovic one the athleticism and the flexibility and two, just I think people should really look at the improvements he's made. Technically, I think it's easy, you know, every, Djokovic is so clutch. He's so mentally great. Yes, that's true. But why am I, you know, why is he so confident? Cause he has the shots to back it up. Look, if my backhand was as reliable as him, I wouldn't be that nervous going into my next USTA match. Um, but unfortunately for me, my backhand isn't that, isn't as reliable and I'm more nervous. And I think with Federer, I think you, you you take away uh how, you know, offensive he was and his willingness to move forward, uh and just at times how effortless he was. And I think if people can just really try to view obviously these are the three greatest players of all time. Jim would also throw Sampras in there, which, you know, I, I definitely can I definitely can appreciate. Um, but you know, statistically these three are by far the greatest of all time. Um you know on the men's side and uh yeah so i think there's something that you can really learn from all of them i think you know it's cliche to say that but like i really think there is so much that you can learn from all and if you choose to just try to find things that are wrong with them uh constantly then i think that's where you know people you know get caught up in it and it's not it's not as productive
0: no oh, that's a great point uh but the hypotheticals what if <laughs> what if uh, Sampras was at his prime, you know, and he, he was in that mix um, with uh, Federer and, and Joe, Federer and Nadal at first. And, you know, I think of Djokovic also, too. He's third man in, and sometimes, like, well, he was breaking up the bromance, and like, who, who's this guy? And he he wasn't loved as much in the beginning. And, and perhaps, uh, you know, some of the things where people thought he was faking injury and things that he's definitely he's proven his character over and over again. And I mean, we all grow up at, um, yeah, I just think with, uh, you know, so, so many different thoughts, um, with, but here, here's another question for you. Uh, being a traditionalist, I mean, I like serving volley doubles. I'd like that, that for that to stick around. I think it's great to have, yeah. have one handers. When I first got into tennis teaching, it was very unusual to see a two-hander. That's how long I've been teaching tennis, but mm. the fed recently told a group of juniors, um, uh, if he could do over again. He thinks he, he said, Well, I think I'd, I'd be a two hander. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, I was just thinking when you were talking about Sampras, I think, you know, one thing that Federer, so I think Feder a lot of the time against Nadal and, 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 and Djokovic, I think Feder was at his best against those guys when he was returning without chipping or slicing. Um, I think throughout his career against those two, he just left them too many short balls. And I think if he had played Sampras like a ton of times, he would have quickly realized like, all right, if this guy is serving and volleying against me nonstop and he's going to hit the ball to my backhand, if I just chip the ball to him, well, I am in big trouble. Um, uh, if, if I just leave too many balls sitting up there for him. Um, so I think with Federer's return, I think that would have, you know, been an improvement from if he had a two-handed backhand. And also, like, when you look at the de- defense of Djokovic and Nadal, they can defend more easily out of open stance with a two-handed backhand, where Federer with a one-handed backhand is, of course, much harder, and then you don't get as much interest on those defensive backhands, and you slice, and, um, you know, I think it's better to hit topspin and get the ball deeper. So I think, if, yeah, that's, that could be true, but he also had such a, an effective variety on the one-hander, um and early in his career he did come to the net more and um yeah i think uh if he had a two-hander there would have been some benefits but it also would have taken away some of the things that he was so great at i think Uh, it's a tough question
0: no that's a great answer with the one-handed backhand is very versatile and so so many things um i think the conditions you know if you know rod laver back in the day you know players from his era you know, if you look at YouTube, and that's where YouTube is amazing, uh, they didn't have a tarp at Wimbledon, and you know, it rained, and it wasn't like 20 people came out and pulled the tarp out and covered the court. By the second week, mm-hmm. they're wearing spikes. They're playing with wooden rackets. They didn't want the ball to bounce. And, you know, that's the conditions that the players of that era played in. And, uh, I, you know, I do think that, um, you know, a Rod Laver, just to how well he played – and there were things that he did so well because of the conditions he played under. And I think all great champions would adapt and adjust. I think tennis history is very complex. I think right now one thing that's uh of interest is that we just we just go with majors, who's who's won the most majors and the mm-hmm. the race who's won the most majors. Um, you know, World War Two, for example, that was a big hiccup, uh a lot bigger than the pandemic. Um but then open tennis, you know, just to think about labor between 62 and he won the grand slam and 69 in between, he didn't play any majors. Um, mm, right. So, um, you know, that like head to head, um, I think if they didn't change the grass at, at Wimbledon, uh, I mean, Nadal when he, when he won and was it 2008 when he first won Wimbledon? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing match. Um, you know, there, one thing that, helped him out is that he, he didn't think he was ready to win on grass. You know, he, he obviously is going to show up like Medvedev. He's a great interview and says, I'm my volleys are the worst. My volleys are awful, but I'm getting better and I can't play on clay. I'm terrible on clay, but I did win the, the Italian open. Um, yeah. but, but he was very humble and he said, well, I don't really like my chances going in Wimbledon, but like Medvedev, he's going to show up and do his very best on clay. Um, the doll shows up and, I think also being able to take the pressure off, say, okay, um, there was so much pressure on Federer to finally win on clay, but he was so great on clay. It was just that, you know, he's Superman, but Nadal was kryptonite. Um, why don't you yeah. com- comment a little bit on the guys as far as playing on different surfaces? I mean, um, would you give uh, would you give Federer the edge on grass over, over um, both of them? Would you give, obviously, Nadal the edge on clay over... You know anybody from any planet in the universe, or um, then, yeah. then hard, hard court Novak.
2: Right, I think on on clay, not even a question. On grass, you know, you're going to give Nadal the uh, Federer the edge over Nadal. Uh, you're going to give. It's tough to say you're going to give Federer the edge over Djokovic because Djokovic beat him in in three Wimbledon finals. Though, if Wimbledon had played like it was in early 2000, I suspect. You Know maybe one or two of those goes center's way. Obviously, in one of the matches, he did have, have match point. In one of the matches, he was it was four four in the fifth set, uh, and he was close to breaking. So, it, it, I mean, these were not like blowouts. Um, and then hardcore, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, the edge has to go to Novak by far. Uh, not by far, but the edge definitely goes to Novak. Um, I think center has combined an 11 Australian Opens, U.S. Open, and Novak is at. 14 now. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting that Novak had, you know, struggled so many times in the US Open final. Like he would get to the final and, and, and then, and then lose. I just think overall, just because of his technical, um, I just think because of his technical, uh, how solid he is technically. I think if you're asking me to pick, have them, they're going to play on a random surface, two of them on any random surface. I'm just going to pick, uh, Djokovic just because i think he's more technically solid now if that match ends up being nadal on clay then i'm in trouble um but randomized i would i would probably give give the edge of, for djokovic if i have to pick what you know one of them randomly in a match and i don't know what it's going to be on i just had to guess
1: with uh, um nick i got a question for you with uh djokovic and nadal djokovic the only player to beat Nadal twice i believe at the french open is that correct yeah, yeah. How, how do you, uh, um, in your opinion, what do you think was that difference maker? Why why is he the only one that could? Um, that yeah. That?
2: Well, I mean, the first one who did it was Soderling, who just you know hit the ball as hard as humanly possible for three hours, and everything went in. Um, and then the first time Djokovic and Nadal played, uh, Nadal was having his worst year. Djokovic was having his best year, uh, and then they ended up playing. And uh, then when they played. Um, more more recently, um, which was twenty twenty one, um, yeah. I mean, I just think that what makes Nadal so good on clay is just not as effective. It, it is still effective. Don't get me wrong. It's just not as effective against Djokovic. It is still clearly very effective, given their head to head on clay and at the French Open. I think Nadal is like. I think an interesting stat is that on hard court, um. Djokovic is, I think the record is, it's about 20 to seven in favor of Djokovic. And then on Clay, it's 20 to eight or 20 to seven in favor of Nadal. It's like the same thing, just mm-hmm. obviously the other person is ahead. Um, but uh, wait, I lost my, what was the question again? Oh, why uh, Djokovic, beat him on, uh, at the French Open. Yeah. Yeah, I think Djokovic's uh, number one contributor is going to be his backhand, I think. I think what is Nadal's most deadly weapon on clay besides his movement and speed it's going to be the the high forehand and i think against djokovic that's just less effective
1: yeah but they've um, played before and they've played before on clay mm-hmm. and on the on that court and um it was just it's just circumstance or i don't know when i when i watched that match i just saw something um some some jokovic's eyes you know kind of like when he was that match point against uh Federer at wimbledon just his eyes kind of Gave it all away, said, I'm not not going away. I'm winning this match.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you remember that match, the third set was, you know, 7-6. It was a very long set. And after that, Nadal was just cooked. He just had worn him down. Uh, And Nadal was clearly dealing with some type of injury at that point. Um, But yeah, Djokovic just wore him down. And um, usually Nadal's able to break his opponents down or get a short ball and then put the point, point away. That just wasn't the case against Djokovic that day and look if they play on clay you know 10 times Nadal's winning like 8 or 7 and um, you know that was just one of the other days that it was Djokovic's day
0: Nick what about doubles um, Federer's with Wawrinka he won gold at the Olympics mm-hmm. and uh, then yeah. Nadal you have to tell me who he won I forgot who he won uh, doubles with but he won gold at the Olympics as well correct
2: he won gold but i think only in singles
0: okay i thought he won
2: gold in doubles but um yeah i think just singles
0: i'm double check i'm, looking, that, I'm, I'm yeah.
2: looking now yeah he oh no oh you're right he did they won in i honestly forgot about that that was in 2016 they, he won with mark lopez
0: yeah I, I remember that. afterwards that uh you know it was ex- it wasn't that much of a shock for warinka and fetter to win doubles. Um, mm-hmm. But even even Nadal, you know, he was kind of smiling like this is this is a fluke. I'm not I'm not that good a doubles player. What are your comments on that? The big three, play, the big three playing doubles, and and you know, and Djokovic. Um, but I really think the you know, Djokovic has, I mean, the game, the way he's serving, volleying now, not serving and volleying together, but just the way he can do both both skill sets, and then obviously his return. But why do you comment on the big three as doubles players?
2: Well, I think what you just said, with Djokovic's return, if he can, you know, that's one thing that makes him very strong as, as a doubles player to begin with, is having a great return. Especially if you're playing these teams that are, you know, um, going to, uh, you know, uh, not be able to deliver as much off the serve, uh, maybe as some of the singles guys that he faces. And uh, with Federer, obviously the volleys have always been been tremendous. And Nadal, I think what Nadal's biggest attribute is like how precise his serve can be with the lefty, with the lefty serve. I mean, I feel like Nadal, Nadal's serve is a been underrated because it's maybe not as hard or as, you know, he's not hitting the spots like Federer, but at least, you know, with the lefty spin, he's always setting, he's not always, but a lot of times setting something up positive for him. And I think in doubles, they all have attributes or yeah, they all have attributes that would be transferable to, to the doubles court
1: i remember nadal one year uh u.s open the year he won it uh i'm not gonna say the year maybe 2016 i'm not remembering think- uh whenever he won 10 i guess yes um i just remember him serving i re-watched the match and he was serving like 10 miles an hour above his
2: average yeah that was
1: 2010 yeah and i mean he won it and he was just I mean, he won it handedly and I think it's the only time he did win the US Open. And he won twenty
2: ten and no, he's won he's won like four, I think.
1: He's won four yeah. US opens. Oh my bad. Which one? Yeah. Oh oh it was the Aussie Open. He yeah. only won once and then he beat it recently against Medvedev in that close five seconds, right? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh your the book on the big three. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously uh there's so many things, mind vitamins, uh quotes, uh just things about their character uh, as far as uh other sports i mean you know fetter grows up in switzerland and i've always heard this about kids from you know central and northern europe they can all ski skate and play soccer and uh I, i've been to Zurich. uh you know that's not exactly where he grew up but it's where he lives now and it's like everybody's going skiing on the weekend and um yeah this when you're on, you're a, you're a kid on a pair of skis, like on a pair of skates, you can you can fall at any moment. Where a kid's in a little kid tennis class, early childhood development, uh, you know, perhaps and it's not the best clinic. They're waiting in line, and a few balls are tossed to them. Especially now, I think a lot of little kid classes in the United States are, you know, there's too much it's too much of a carnival atmosphere, and there's no no technical instruction at all. But what about that other is- sports? I mean, Nadal, I mean he's a you know, he obviously grew up on the beach and trying this and trying that, whether it's, I mean, whether it was surfing or skiing. Uh, what about those guys as far as being athletes?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, all three of them are tremendous athletes. I think, um, you know, I think when you look at Djokovic, you think of the, the flexibility. You look at Nadal, you think of, you know, all right, this guy's ripped. He's very... He's an amazing mover. I think when you think of Federer, you think of just being more of a smooth mover. Um, I think I always thought Federer's movement on clay was underrated, how well and effectively he slid on clay, uh, and just how strong of a clay court player he was. Um, I also think with Federer, the, the I, I see more of a – you think of the doll, you think of the feet, the legs. I think of a, a Federer's athleticism more in the hands. Like you look at some of the flick shots that he would hit and the touch shots he would hit – and the drop shots he would hit, and just the ease with which he was able to manipulate the racket uh, and make it look so simple. And then everyone and their like now with Alcaraz drop shotting so much, you see everyone and their mother at, at the course trying drop shots out of nowhere. Everyone thinks that they're Alcaraz, uh, and then their drop shot lands in the service box uh, on their side of the net um, <laughs> instead of instead of the other service box. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, all three have their own athletic gifts that I think have made them so special. I think Djokovic, to me, the defining Djokovic trait is his flexibility and being able to defend so well with the open stance. Uh, for an for adult, it, it's the speed and the core coverage and the movement. And then for Federer, it's just what he's able to do with his hands. Um, and just, you know, the year that he was doing that saber where he would run into, like, the service line and have volley the ball. Um, like not many people could do that. And he made those, some of those look really easy.
0: Yeah. With soccer, um, football um, around the world, known as football here in the U.S. soccer. Yeah. Um, you know, Nadal's uncle, not Uncle Tony, but one of his uncles was on the, uh, the Spanish team that won the, the World Cup. So he was born into jackocracy. Um, fetter you know, in Switzerland with skiing being, you know, obviously so prevalent, but, um, uh, in Serbia, um, Djokovic's parents, they had a restaurant where they made pancakes in the morning and pizza in the evening at the bottom of a ski hill. But, uh, just imagine if all three of them were soccer players. Um, I heard someone talk about that one time. They would all be world-class soccer players, but mm-hmm. their games would be very similar as far as, with the way they would play and the person who elaborated on this was a soccer player. And, and, you know, I just said, this is how they would play, but they would all have their own style. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just with, um, uh, yeah, you know, I just think that's, that's of interest. I do. I think with your book, uh, you know, what, what else did they do when they were younger, but then also to the character side, um, you know, I've just, you, you just hear so much about all three of them and, you know, you like Nadal, there's so many great thoughts. Uh, what's your goal? My, my goal is my next practice is going to be my best practice ever. Yeah. you know, just, right. um, you know, those are uh, like Daniel Coyle has his book, uh, the talent code, but the little book of talent here, 52 tips, but I think there's so many character tips, so many tips for, uh, forget what they do on the tennis court, but just, you know, just the way they live, they've lived their lives and, you know, to get how they get to where, how the how they got to where they are. um, I think there's so much to that story. I, I like the, I like the backstory, you know, people come to see me for technique, but it's really, I tell people that you can't really develop a player to a high level unless character's in the right place.
2: Yeah, totally agree. Clearly all three of them. It's it's always been the right place. I mean, I, I watch these videos of Feder training, and um, you know his training for his legs, and maybe they this was also like to help with split step. Is like he would jump. Like sometimes I'll have the people that I teach to start because I feel like when I teach split step, the people they don't actually jump or get off the ground, and um, so sometimes I'll have them like hop over like a tube just to get them to kind of start jumping a little bit and uh with Federer I see this video of him like just using like hurdles that they would use in the Olympics like he would jump over two hurdles hit a forehand and then backpedal and then do the same thing over and over and over and over you know his longtime trainer you know Paganini would talk about just like how relentless he was training and just how consistent and committed he was to maintaining and protecting his body which I think when you compare him to Djokovic Nadal um you know he's he always he, he, he always played with like, there was obviously like a little bit less effort, you can say. Um, I think that was always something that people would, how people would describe it. Um, but he, you know, he never retired from a match during the middle of a match, which is incredible. The guy played, you know, so many matches in his career. Not to retire once mid-match is a testament to the work ethic and the character. Mm. Um, and, ju- and given that Nadal and Djokovic had retired from matches, Joe pitch more so earlier in his career just shows you how hard it is uh, it's not to criticize them but just to show you how what's better did by not retiring from a match how incredible of a, of a stat that was
0: yeah that, i'm glad you mentioned that that's amazing not one time uh, Unbelievable. You know, junior tennis players need to realize that college coaches uh, you know now they can just at their fingertips push a few buttons and they can see how many times a player is withdrawn from tournaments and sometimes it, well, it's legit but sometimes it's uh they're worried about their UTR.
2: Well, this is one thing I understand about college tennis is, you know, these kids uh, and, you know, Jim had been training a, a player who's now number one on a D1 team. And, you know, I've chatted with him about, you know, his experiences on the team and watched some of his matches that have been online. and You know, they, they, they don't finish the matches. If the match is over for the team, the players traveled from Florida to Texas and they're 5-5 in the third set and they make them stop. And I, I just don't get it. I think it's insane. Like you, just, even though the match is won, why are we stopping the match? And to not have ad scoring, I that I don't understand either.
0: Well, a couple not comments. A couple of- comments. On, one on no ad scoring. A guy like Chuck Creasy, who you know, he's a big proponent of not shortening the score. But years ago, uh, the college coaches could play. They they played no ad for I think fifteen years, but they could play as many matches as possible. Um, I know at the, at team tournaments, like say the, uh, they have their conference finals or they have the, uh, national tournament at the end and, you know, they need to stop the match to get the next match going. So I I can see that when the team match is over, but I agree a hundred percent. Uh, my son Connor was playing a match one time and he won the first set, got down, I don't know, four, one in the second set. He, he just started throwing points and the coaches came over and says uh what are you doing he goes i'm going to lose this set there's no way i want to play this guy in a 10-point tiebreaker so, so he's <laughs> intentionally missing so be, before one of his teammates clinched you know he had lost that second set so then you, then you, you're guaranteed and, and again i have to always uh verify but the, the rule uh it's, uh it's up to the coaches if the coaches uh the coaches agree okay let's play and i think most of the time what they do is they uh They'll play that 10 point tiebreaker. But I agree with you that uh play the play the match, um, play the match out, especially when they travel great distances like that. Um, how about coaches? I think with uh Fetter, I mean, I am always quoting uh his mother, Lynette Fetter, said when he was eight years old, his lessons he stood in one place on balance with long follow through. So he was taught static balance. But I also read where uh Adolf Kowalski Seppi, he was called, uh, still alive and you think he'd be a very sought-after tennis coach. What did you do with Roger when he was eight years old? Um, mm-hmm. But I, he said, well, you, Roger's the type of player that you could just show him once. And, you know, he could go out and, and just, you know, okay, do this is an emergency shot. This is how you hit it. And he could just hit it. But why don't you talk a little bit about the coaches of the big three? Um, Roger said he thought at the end of his career, he said, I think I had the right coaches at the right time. Um, I mean, Djokovic, I should, oh, should go back to Nadal. Um, I mean, I mean, Moy is in the mix now, but for the longest time it was just uncle Tony. And I think for, <clears throat> for listeners, um, you know, the, the Nadal family said, no, we're fine. We'll just keep working here in Mallorca. They didn't go to the mainland and work with the federation, you know, and I do, I do think it's the family that takes the tennis player down the road where Fetter, you know, he went off to the Swiss Academy. Um, you know, Djokovic's parents did as much as they could, I and mean, then he was with Nicky Pelech in, in Germany. But what, what, um, what would your research or what would your thoughts be on the the coaches of the big three?
2: Yeah, I mean, for for Feder, he obviously talked about how much of an influence that you know his, his coach Peter Carter had on him. Um, obviously, he he passed away when Federer was younger, and just kind of like emerging into the to the player that he was. Um, I think, I think that's always one thing that, that is tough to get a gauge on, you know, how much of, you know, how much of an influence does one specific coach have, for instance, you know, like, okay, with Chilich with his serve, that was kind of like a very clear thing. Um, with Djokovic, with his game, it's like, okay, you know, Marion Vida has been Djokovic's coach for so many years. But when we see Djokovic start making these technical changes, was it Vida? Was it someone else? Was it another member of his team? Was were they getting outside consultation? Um, so it's tough. It's it's tough to to for me to really discern um, what what changes have been made by who, it, 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 unless the player is very explicitly declaring, okay, hey, this this coach allowed me to make this change. Um, yeah. Federer had, you know, Federer had, you know, Peter Longgren, he had Edberg. Uh, obviously, Severin lucy was on his team for so many years. Tony Roach uh, ending his career with Lubacic. I think that I think it's very interesting that he had a player who played against him be his coach. I think that was really fascinating. Um, I think that's the only uh, Moya, I guess as well, would be the only other one where like in the big three, that's like someone who they actually played is now their coach. Um, I know Mark Lopez, who Nadal played doubles with has like helped him and been on his team a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think I find that kind of fascinating as well. Um, but like when I watched the practice of the U.S. Open with Djokovic, he, he would talk to his team, but I like, didn't understand what they were saying because it was in Serbian. Hmm. So it was tough. So for me, to answer your question, it's always been kind of tough to gauge who's doing what exactly, um, unless the player is explicitly saying it, which typically they're not.
1: With Djokovic, a little tangent. I just thought uh, we talked about the Olympics. Uh, He hasn't done so hot in the Olympics. Uh, They're coming up next year. Um, um, Mm -hmm. Same thing. Do you you think he's going to break down like he's done the last two, where, you know, he... He gets so emotional. I mean, the last two Olympics, he couldn't couldn't didn't do his best, and he just just breaks down because he he fights so hard for his country, and you can just see in his eyes. And he just doesn't perform at the Olympics. Uh, what do you what do you think his chances are next year?
2: Well, it's in Paris at the French Open, so it will be a very interesting tournament, especially if Nadal is there. And I think he will be highly motivated to win. I mean, he won every Grand plan. He's won every Grand Slam three times now. Um, and if he wins the French Open next year, it'll be every Grand Slam four times. Um, he's won all nine Masters tournaments. I believe now he's won all of them. I, I have to double check, but I think he's won all of them three times at least. And then, um, but the only thing he hasn't won is, is the Olympics. Uh, this is the only Davis Cup this would be the only thing that is left for him to achieve so I'm sure he will be highly motivated as will Nadal to win the Olympics on clay at the French Open I, I do
0: think uh, this the Serbian people want to do so well for the Serbian flag and I do think obviously there's pressure but I think that uh, there's extra pressure um, when uh, you know you again you just get on YouTube and look at the, the recordings of uh, when Djokovic goes home, takes a trophy home. It's uh, it's emotional. Um, so many things come to mind. I think with coming back to World Cup soccer, um, the, when the, the World Cup was in South Africa and Spain won, the last minute, my understanding is is Nadal, the family, they chartered a plane and flew down, and he said he wasn't going to go, but he was there and he was in the locker room, and he had just won Wimbledon. And they, the reporter says, "Is this just like winning Wimbledon?" He said, "No, no, soccer is much bigger." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I, right, I, right. I don't, don't want to um, not be respectful. I mean, and that's one thing about Nadal is off the charts when it comes to respect." Uh, so many random thoughts coming to mind with uh, coaching. Darren kale one time, uh, you know, he he either went to Dubai or wherever Switzerland, and he met with um, Federer to be his coach, and you know. It, better elected not to hire him, but he did hire at that time, Anacone. I think with Lubitschek, one thing that, um, I think the ratio has changed completely where it was, uh, le- much less tennis, uh, like Lubitschek himself towards the end of his career, big guy and had, you know, the concern of, uh, not letting his body break down, but it was like one hour of tennis and, you know, three hours in the gym or something like that. Um, I know that, um, Lubitschek made him train, changes a uh, regimen as far as what he was doing, as far as off court work.
1: Mm. Is it true, uh, yeah. Nick? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt your thought there. Um, no, maybe, maybe you know this is true, but I heard, uh, you know, Feder like clockwork two hours before any ATP match he plays, he has pasta. Is that is that true? Have you heard something like that?
2: That I believe I have read that. Yeah, that does sound. That, that when he's been asked, you know, what his choice of meal is before a match, I I have read that.
1: That's so interesting because you know you look into all these different aspects of players, and Djokovic up there with nutrition. You don't hear much about it with Nadal, but with Djokovic, you hear about his transformation where he was struggling early on in his career with nutrition, where he gets these long five-set matches and would just be drained. And um, he talked about it in interviews where. Growing up in a Serbian culture, there, a lot of, a lot of gluten, basically a lot of breads. And, uh, he went, Mm -hmm. he tried to find specialists and eventually found somebody that said, okay, this is the diet for you, no gluten. And, you know, he did so much, so much better after that. Any, any comments on the, the nutrition of the big three?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the most obvious one is Djokovic with the gluten. I think he's really been very vocal about how much of a change that made. I mean, he was retiring from a lot of matches, a lot of important matches. Mid-match, um, I mean, there was the one against Roddick at the, at the, you know, US Open where, um, they, you know, it was very, Roddick was not pleased with how that match ended and, um, pretty much said that Djokovic always has something that's wrong with him. And clearly the gluten was not, um, was not helping him. And he, as you said, really attributed to his ability to start playing and winning those longer matches. Um. yeah I mean look whatever all three of them have done has allowed them to um, uh, you know play tons of long matches including in Masters events where they have to play long matches in back to back days and win those matches over many years I think it's been easier for Federer because he plays a more aggressive style of tennis I think for Nadal and Djokovic um, you know I think one it, Federer's style of play which is probably less Effort, you know, putting less effort into the shots allows him to play longer matches, or excuse me, would allow him in theory to play longer matches, but just, you know, based off the aggression that he played with, didn't end up being the case that he would play long matches. Uh, the only match that Federer had that was over five hours was um, the one he played against Indon in Rome in 2006, which was uh, in the fifth set. He lost 7 6, he had two match points. That was the only match he played, in my opinion. That's the best big three match that has ever been played for anyone watching. You should go watch that match.
0: Um, Could you say that again? What match is that?
2: It's two thousand six Rome final between Federer and Nadal. That's back when, in my opinion, that's
1: been back when Masters had five sets, correct? Correct. Yeah, Yeah. that is that's the
2: highest quality match that I've seen from both ends. I think it was a great combination of Federer's offense against um, Nadal's defense, but then they also had just like great classic clay court rallies. uh, And it was just such an insane match, both in so far as the quality of tennis and how dramatic it was, especially the the end of the fifth set where Federer really, really uh, should have won um, and just missed two forehands that were right there for him. And yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, the one thing with seeds, I'm telling juniors all the time, the first seed and second seed, certainly that's a a great opportunity if you get to play the first or second seed, play the the better players in the tournament. But the the term seed is, you know, if you put seed one or seed two, they're both at the top or the bottom of the draw, depending how it's pulled pulled out of the hat. But so the tournament can blossom at the end. Um, And, you know, success breeds success. One thing along that line, success breeds success is, you know, these guys are walking corporations, you know, they've made so much money mm-hmm. and they have yeah. such great teams and they're competing against people, um, who don't necessarily, um, uh, you know, say in the early round, somebody comes up against one of the big guys. Um, it's, it isn't, it isn't man on man. It's, 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 you know, it's team against team yeah. and they're the resources. Right. They have. What are you what are your comments on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, a huge issue for players who are trying to, I think it's a, I think it's a bigger issue for players just trying to make it in the Tennessee, not like, Oh, if you had a team, you would beat Djokovic. Of course that's not true. Uh, But for them to actually make a name for themselves and to actually establish themselves as a really good pro uh, they need a team. And with the way that tennis winnings are handled as far as prize money allocation at these smaller events it's just not possible for so many of these players to do anything besides just go to tournament to tournament by themselves uh well when I was watching Djokovic at the U.S. Open practice he's got his whole team there there was probably you know four or five people with him on the court um and that's just such an advantage of course he's earned that advantage but it's not like other sports where you know I'm a big NFL fan American football. And every team, doesn't matter if you're the best team or the worst team, you still have the same set of coaches um, and you still have the same set of trainers. The players don't pay for anything as far as like the travel or the food, everything is set up for them. And tennis, it's, uh, it's a lot lonelier and that's a lot tougher to make it. And uh, I think once you get to that level, I think one thing that I've heard a lot of pros talk about is, you know, the importance of them to be able to travel with their own physio to be able to have someone there to be able to treat them and to help them stretch and help them prepare for matches.
0: Yeah. Your book, I, I, have I've been told that Nadal's never broken a racket. Um, I've been told that, that uh, is, the grandfather, yeah. um, there's just so much respect, not only with his father and his uncles, but, um, um, you know, to, to his grandfather, uh, so many Nadal stories with, uh, heavy duty stuff, um, uh, you know, Peter Carter, he, you know, he was killed in car accident in South Africa and Roger's mm-hmm. mother being from South Africa. Roger, you know, very young was in, you know, he was like very emphatic about Peter going to see the beauty of South Africa. And I think that was something that's written about. And, you know, certainly there was a scene not too long ago where Roger was asked and he broke down and, you know, it's kind of like Andy Murray in that classroom and he was in the school and the teacher came in. And, right. Just everybody knows what happened. Don't even want to mention it. But, um, right. But then, what about Djokovic and the hardship? I mean, with war. I mean, um, the uh, some of the background stuff. What comes to your mind with uh, the guys? You know, we've talked about. The yeah, I mean, clearly so.
2: Djokovic, Djokovic has talked about what he's gone through as a you know young kid living in in Serbia um, and obviously being in the middle of just bombings. Uh, And, you know, what, how he's been able to become from that position to become the number one player, tennis player in the world. And, you know, what he learned, you know, from those experiences and growing up in such a, you know, a difficult environment that, you know, how that essentially uh, allowed him to mentally grow as, as a person and a player. And I'm sure that has had so much impact on his life. And I'm sure that's continued to motivate him as far as how dedicated he is to winning for Serbia and for the Olympics next year. I'm sure that's one of the main reasons why he gets so emotional playing for Serbia and playing for his country because of what happened to him when he was a kid. Um, And it makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah. There's you read reports that when he was a kid, um, you know, no protein. I mean, just to, you know, just of the, of the three, I mean, the hardship uh through war i mean it's terrible what's going on in the world right now with, with Djokovic. um you know you talk about in the and lunch money uh the Djokovic family at one time that, you know everybody in the country they didn't know where the next meal was coming from mhm but i think right. i think yep. some of those things are um you know and i'm with kids today uh you know they used to say things about me when i was a kid yeah uh, the kids today um the TV was called the idiot box, but with a TV now that what, you know, the kids have a cell phone in their pocket and it's just constant. I mean, I'm always amazed that young tennis players don't watch the top players. They don't read about the top players. Uh, You know, it's not that expensive to get a library card and go read about these players. What about some of the books that have been written on the big three?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, the one that I have right now is the one by, Christopher Clary, um, which I've only started reading. Um, truthfully most of the book that I'm writing about is actually more based on the on court portion of their rivalries. So trying to, what I've been reading most about the big three is actually old press conferences and old news articles as opposed to books. Um, So a lot of press conferences from previous matches, like I was just reading one from the first match that Djokovic and Federer played and Federer was essentially like, yeah, this kid could be pretty good. He might have some talent, but he needs to work on a few things. Um, and Djokovic was like, yeah, it was like very, I was scared to play the number one player in the world. Um, but once I realized, okay, I can play with this guy, I was able to loosen up and they went, you know, they went to a three set match. Um, but yeah, most of, most of the reading that I've done recently in the last couple of years has been a lot more articles and uh, press conferences as opposed to some books on, on, on these guys.
0: I think it's Chris Bauer wrote about a biography on Djokovic is page 17, where his childhood coach talks about, um, in particular, Vic Braden books. Um, it's just interesting where, you know, what, what outside influences, uh, you know, they had from a tennis teaching standpoint. I think that's where... Um, in my travels, I spent, was fortunate enough to go to Prague many years ago, and I, if I had to say, well, the, the country that I think tennis is taught the best in, from my observations, would be, um, you know, now it's the Czech Republic, but it used to be Czechoslovakia <laughs> and Slovakia. Um, with, um, Yeah, there's so many things that go... Or behind a player, um, to have them be successful. But I, I don't, I don't think people really, um, obviously people like yourself have done that, but really dig deep and go, you know, what's really behind these guys. Um, it's just amazing. Um, it's just amazing. To just think about, um, and I guess that leads to a question with Alcaraz or others. Do you see anybody else, uh, winning multiple slams like the big three have?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think thinner. I really am high on Sinner. I think he is as good as it gets. That's not Alcaraz. I think, but I think he has the potential to to get close. I mean he he's got he's drastically improved his serve. Uh, his ground strokes are so potent. He's a really good mover. He's not as good of a mover as Alcaraz, but he's pretty good. He's starting to start. He's starting to move forward a bit more. Um, which Alcaraz does and Alcaraz has great touch center needs to develop that as well. But he's got so much power and he can take the ball so early. And he's also very mentally strong. He's very serious for a young player. And so yeah, I would say those two guys, I think Runa is also one that you gotta watch out for. I think his game is so solid. I think his technique is really solid. Uh I, I think those in my opinion you ask me five years from now, who's the top three based on what's happening now, I would say, assuming Djokovic is retired, I would say those three, Alcaraz, Sinner, and Runa.
0: I don't think it would be fair to uh, not bring up Andy Murray. Um, at one time, it was the big four. What are, your yeah. thoughts, what are your thoughts on Murray?
2: Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was able to get to number one in the world in 2016 and hold that spot for, I think it was somewhere around 40 weeks. Um while the big three were there, is incredible. I think, you know, when it's all said and done, he'll be underrated in in this grand scheme of things. I mean, he's beaten Djokovic 11 times. Um, Even though he's lost 25, he's beaten him 11. Um, I believe he's also beaten Federer 11 times. Murray, looking it up right now, Murray and Federer. Yeah, he's beaten Federer. He's 14-11 against Federer. And then against Nadal, he is, let's see here, against Nadal, he is, he's got seven wins over Nadal. So, you know, combined, he's almost got 30 wins against three of them. I mean, how many people can say that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that guy just has so much heart, so much resilience, uh, such a, such a good mover, such a great backhand, such a good return, just, those three things that he was so good at, you know, movement backhand return. There was just that one other guy who was a little bit better than him at at all those things. Um, of course being Djokovic and, you know, he just, I mean, the guy just fell into the wrong era as did all the other players of the era, Burridge, Ferrer, Sanga, Del Potro, Mavrinka, um, all these guys who were living (laughs) during the big three and would have had so many more, titles
0: if it wasn't for those three guys yeah it was murray always the injuries as well um wh- what about european tennis um what are your thoughts we asked guests on our podcast american tennis i think we all mm-hmm. t- all tire of you know american tennis getting beat up But you just mentioned and i think that's a very interesting point point. and the men's side five years from now who would be the the big three um, yep. what thoughts do you have to improve American tennis or what, or on the flip side, why do you think European tennis has an edge?
2: I mean, one thing is hit more back end. Uh, I think Americans, you know, you've had for years, you had sock and you had Isner and query and who else am I? am probably not, I'm probably forgetting others. Um, Isner query Sock. Just, uh, I mean, I guess you can maybe throw Roddick in there as well. Just big serve, big forehand. Um, and it's just I think with some of the newer guys the Americans like Tommy Paul Tommy Paul I like a lot because I think he is 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 just very solid from the baseline and he's not trying to just bash the ball past you um I also like Fritz a lot too obviously he's a bigger hitter but he's also got like a much more solid backhand I think that's one thing with the more up and coming Americans that their backhands are way more solid Giafo um, as well. Um, someone like Shelton kind of probably falls more into the mold of like big serve, big forehand, but he's also more willing to come into the net um, which I think is another factor. you have to move forward. you got to come forward. Um, and uh, yeah, Corda is really solid as well. great forehand, great backhand, really solid technique overall. Um, so I think where American tennis is right now is like for the men, is pretty promising. Um, and obviously for the women, you have Goff and, and Pagula. Um, but, for the, but for the men, I think it's definitely as promising as it's been in, in, in quite a long time. Uh, do I, I don't see any of these guys, however, being able to get into that top echelon. I just don't think they have enough firepower, enough athleticism, uh, enough touch, enough variety to compete with the center and the Alcarazes of, of the world.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean I mean think I think the clay the red clay courts, uh that's a great teacher. And you know, in a lot of parts of Europe, they have the best of both. Um not necessarily necessarily in Spain. There was more hard courts. Uh at, was it ninety two Olympics, uh, There were more hard courts in, in Spain. But um yeah, you can, you know, as Jimmy Connors would say, you know, you can take a short ball and slap it on a, on a hard court, but you gotta really work it more on a clay court. Um, and, and I think back in the, in the day when we did so well, it was before the iron curtain came down, the Berlin wall and tennis became global, but also when the Americans were, you know, on our, basically our basic surface as a hard court, that's when the going way back, three of the four majors were on grass and it was not the grass of today. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting. I uh, and then, you know, then people might say, well, you know, the world group just beat the t- team Europe.
1: But yeah. Then, I mean, it, that was a.
0: But there's a few players missing from team Europe. I mean, a few, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a few. Rublev showed up, but I think the seven guys that were higher ranked than anybody else on the team did not show up.
1: Yeah. I mean, top eight guys in the world, I don't think. Showed yeah. Up. With. Um, yeah. Yeah. Federer. Retiring and leaving Labor Cup, I think, kind of put Labor Cup at a lower tier type of tournament. I mean, it's not really you're not playing for your country like the Davis Cup. It's more of just a, a team event. And Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic when they were playing, it made it more high stakes because you had the best players playing. You know, Federer retired now. Nadal's out. Djokovic just won his, just won the U.S. Open, and you know maybe. I don't know. The future of labor cups very dim right now in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it's been good theater. I, I think about good theater. Um I remember being in New York City. I watched um Federer play Sampras. But it was you know, it was after Sampras had retired for for some time. He was off the circuit for a few years. Um but no, I like the the fighter, you know, a champion. Every champion has their has their day. Um but it yeah the, the big 3 it's it's just amazing to think you
1: know who you know
0: you t- turn the clock back 10 years ago, 10 years ago who would have thought um you know what, what is the breakdown now it's 20 for fetter right yeah and it's 20- 20
2: 24
0: yeah so what, what's your guess on that where they, i would think you know so obviously if if it's las vegas you know um uh, <laughs> is stuck at 20 I mean, Nadal is going to play one more year, right? Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, for uh, it would be a great movie script if he could win the French one more time. They should na- they should change the name of the French Open just called the Nadal Open. <laughs> the
1: Nadal Open. But
0: a
2: question. Also, that, intru- go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. What well, was I say, It's interesting hypothetical of what if there were two clay court, you know, Grand Slams every year instead of two hard court. Or what if there was two grass? Mm. was how how different would you know would would these numbers i mean if there were two clay we all know nadal would have like 30 so many at this point yeah he would have so many at this point regardless of when these tournaments were played every year he would likely be winning all of them or yeah. most, close to all of them
0: for three years the u.s open was played on a hard true american green clay and mm-hmm. borg did not win um mm. interesting he did not win um but you know at one time you know he, he's his neck was injured and another time i'd have to think uh it was um 74 was the last year was at flushy meadows it was 75 76 77 or fact checker um it was um connor's won all the even years so he won 76 uh rontes in 75 and vilas in 77 i mean it was won 10 years in a row by lefties but uh, that, was, that was Borg's chance for sure, To But he retired at 26. Um, I was at the Spanish school a couple of times, and Emilio Sanchez, he was asked, and he loves Nadal. You know, who wins, Borg or Nadal? And, and you know, he said Borg. I couldn't believe it. You know, he just said because of you know, how he could move. Um, mm-hmm. I remember being in a, a room with all these coaches, and uh, Jose Garris, he had coached Federer for a little bit, and you could not hear a pin drop when he was talking about his experience coaching Federer, um, the, uh, yeah. Uh, trying to think. It's, yeah. Uh, Milt Schmidt about Bobby or he goes, I'm just happy. I, I lived when Bobby or lived. And I think that we've <laughs> we all been so fortunate to live at the time of watching these three play tennis.
2: For, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Djokovic will get, I mean, he's at 24. He's one. Amazingly, he's won since 2015, like since the beginning of 2015, he's won, that's the last essentially nine seasons, he's won 17 Grand <laughs> So Essentially the last nine seasons, he's essentially almost equaled what Federer did in his entire career. Um, so where do you pretty think? Pretty insane.
0: I, 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 yeah. see him, I see him being like Tom Brady and playing until he's 42, 43 years old.
2: I think he's going to get at least two next year, so he'll be at 26. I would go, oh, man, Ugh. the number that's in my head right now is 28. I feel like 28. I feel like like two years from now, he'll probably – he has to have some type of drop. you know. Um, but maybe not. Who knows? Maybe he'll end up with like 32. But who knows? But Alcaraz is going to get better. These younger guys are going to get better. They're going to make it tougher for him. Um, but, yeah, I think 28 is what I would – say that he's going to end up with Nadal. Yeah. I mean, if he could, if Nadal wins the French open next year, that would be incredible. Um, that would be a, like one of the best sports stories ever, um, for him to do that. But yeah, Djokovic, I'm going to go 28.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, last question I have, Ivan, you may have another question or two, but, um, where do you see them post career? Um, uh, I, I read mm-hmm. where uh, Tony Gottsick uh, thinks that Feder. I'd have to agree that uh, he's going to be like Arnold Palmer. Where Arnold Palmer, through decades, you know, he was endorsing products. He was just so beloved. Uh, I guess that was uh, worldwide, but definitely here in the states. Um, um if you were to uh, think, okay, down the road, and. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think like like Sampras is not so connected with tennis. Uh, it's terrible that was happening with his wife and her health, right? And with uh, cancer, but um, what about um, your thoughts on down the road after tennis?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what you said about Federer is definitely right. I was, you know, he he did an event at the U.S. Open at the park that I play tennis at. And it was for own, you know, the shoe company that he's an investor in now. And it was such a good event. And he was there for probably he probably what time did he get there? He probably got there at like uh like one o'clock and left at like five thirty. So he was at this public park for like four and a half hours. Uh and then afterwards there was an after party that he was at as well. And he was there for a good hour as well. I actually met him there. Um and he was very personable. He was chatting with everyone, taking pictures. He was playing ping pong with people. Like he was just another person. Like he was literally like, I was standing at the ping pong table with him several feet away. And he's just playing ping pong, talking to people <laughs> like if it was just anyone else. It was very, it was weird. It was very weird. I'm like, wait, that's Federer right there. Pretty surreal kind of thing. Just to be like, this guy's just casually standing next to me playing ping pong. Um, yeah. And he's just, I was actually luckily enough earlier in August able to go to another event that he was at also in New York. That was, um, which one was, was this owned as well? Um, which event was this? It was, I don't think it was owned, And, um, I don't know. It was, this was Uniqlo Uniqlo and uh, it was with a bunch of kids where he was giving instruction to kids and doing like a little clinic with a bunch of kids, probably between the ages of like 10 and 18 and uh, he was just having a really good time and he was interviewed afterwards. Kids were asking him questions and you could just tell how happy this guy is to, to, to be retired and to be enjoying his life away from tennis and that he, you could just tell he's very genuinely happy where he's at and that he's like, I made the most of my career. My knee isn't cooperating anymore. You could see on the court when he's trying to move, like you can tell that he can't move. Like if he tries to run for a ball that's anywhere that's over anywhere beyond a couple of feet he was struggling wow. so you can tell he and he says that his mom is still checking in on him to see how his knee is um and um yeah so i think what's better he's definitely going to be that guy who's like going around the world and still interacting with people and endorsing products and being the spokesman um and yeah i think i think that the three of them better will definitely be the one who people like just have the most connection with overall and, and see most aligning with like the sport itself um, being a little bit transcendent within the sport as far as like just what he how he's remembered um, and Nadal I, I see Nadal being the one who's more like Sampras where he's a little bit further removed from the sport he has his academy but he seems like this guy is very content just going out fishing relaxing enjoying himself which I hey, can't can't argue with that um and then I see Djokovic as the one who's most likely to be co- a coach I think if there's and the three of them I think Djokovic would be the one who's a coach it seems like this guy has just got like a killer mentality just nonstop, and just wants to just wants to win and um not that an adult doesn't have that but I just feel like In the long run, I just, for whatever reason, I just feel like Djokovic is going to be the one who's going to be motivated to want to help a young player do what he did. Um, Yeah. yeah,
1: He's already offered Nick Kuros to be
2: his coach for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. uh, Yeah. That's that's the student everyone wants, right?
0: Well, certainly uh, he does so much, as I said earlier, for Serbian tennis. Uh, yeah, I think all three, when asked, are obviously class acts and be ambassadors for the game. But I, I, I agree with what you said. I can see uh, Nadal being more like Sampras and being away from it at the same time. But if he's asked to contribute, he would. Um,
2: yeah, right,
0: exactly. I mean, but Federer is Federer. I mean, of the three, um, even though Djokovic uh, has gone on and done so much with on, on the number side of it, uh, Rogers the rock star.
2: Yeah, I w- the way I would describe it is I think if you want to like be motivated to play tennis, like you're probably gonna look towards Federer and like how he played and the way that he played and just how smooth and effortless he was. I think if you want to look at like you can look at all three, but I think the player you're gonna look at most to like, all right, I'm actually gonna get better at tennis and try to improve my game and look to see a player who's made improvements and how they've done that, you're gonna look at Djokovic. And then I think if you're going to look at a player where you're going to say, all right, how am I going to navigate through a match mentally and, 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 you know, give it my all, you're going to look at Nadal. So I think, again, everyone should be trying to look for whatever they can from all three.
0: I think from a business standpoint uh, uh, with what's the name of the Japanese company, Uniqlo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uniqlo. So it's, you know, Nadal, excuse me, Federer's about to retire Djokovic was wearing that line of clothes and, and now he's back with, or he's with Lacoste. So it's, you know, right. You, you know, you just read, well, he got a 10 a year deal, X amount of dollars. Then he's, he's going to be retiring in a year. I mean, that's how big he is. That's uh you know, this it just, is, just mind boggling. Um, yeah.
2: I mean, like, well, I think it was like 30 million per year for 10 years, yeah. like absurd it's insane.
0: With, um, no, I've said with, um, being in a room with Fetter being interviewed and I've, I've, I think I've mentioned it on this podcast where, you know, I was writing for a magazine and, um, Fetter wins a late night match and Arthur Ashe and, uh, you know, he's going to answer questions in four languages, but his father would be there with him. And, you know, so, he but he's going to, he's, he's one, so he's going to play again. So he, you know, he showers and has a massage you know, he has food, so you have to wait a long time for him to come in. And uh, you know, just remember of the of the, the languages. I mean, Swiss German, French, and English were the best three. So he, his German was not as good as the other three. But he, he sat up, and and that was just unbelievable. Um, the uh, and just how he how he was in those interviews.
2: Um, I mean, all three of them are incredibly well spoken. They're all really intelligent. Um, I mean, Fender, when he was interviewed, uh, at this, um, event that I was at, I just couldn't believe how expansive and, and how, how much he elaborated on every answer. Just how it wasn't like he was trying to rush or trying to finish the questions. Like he really was very thoughtful about every single question that he was asked, uh, and just really went in, went deep into every answer. Uh, and it was really, impre- and I think all three have done it. I mean, if you read a lot of their press press conferences and you read a lot of their answers, uh, it's really, they're really long. They're very long. Uh, and they're very, they, they, they really go at length uh, to, to describe what they're talking about. I think it shows a, a certain passion. Um, and I mean, there was a recent interview. I don't know how recent it was, but there was someone who interviewed, you know, the famous Patriots coach, Bill Belichick, Uh, about a specific play that had happened in a game. And Belichick was so fascinated by what had happened with the specific play and how it had developed um, that he – I believe that he went on for around 8 to 10 minutes on one answer about one specific play. Meanwhile, in the past, you couldn't get this guy to say a single word about anything. But with this, when you got the passion, he went on for 8 or 10 minutes from a guy who would never talk.
0: Well, it's fantastic to listen to you talk about you know, your time in tennis and what you're doing in New York City. Uh, one thing, what about parents with these? You know, mm-hmm. you, you've obviously read so much about the big three and paid such close attention to it. Uh, once again, I said family gets tennis players down the road. Um, you know, I mean, I think I could hold court talking about the, the family backgrounds of all three just based on what I've read um, uh, it's interesting when you're in tennis for a long period of time, um, the other day I was at a match where just sitting in the bleachers and I looked at this woman's face, I go, I know who she is. And yeah, I didn't know her, but I just knew the face and it was, uh, Kathy Horvath, you know, she was top 10 in the world and you know, you're just sitting on the bleachers and it's like, well, I can listen to what she has to say. I mean, she's sitting right next to me and that that's for something, uh, um, better to just listen sometimes instead of introduce yourself. And, um, but yeah, the parents, what comes to your mind? Uh, I guess we could sign off after that. What, what comes to your mind with the parents, um, of the big three?
2: Yeah. I mean, Federer, I know Federer said that he, you know, attributes a lot to, uh, you know, his mom and, you know, going back to to South Africa a lot when he was growing up. Um, though he said that, you know, he took a lot of his gifts from, from his dad. Um, you know, one thing, one, as far as parents, the one thing that, that came to mind is the, the, the um, and I know this is not really directly answering your question, but the issue that Federer had with Djokovic's parents when, you know, earlier in his career, where he always thought Djokovic's parents were, or at least in the one specific match, I should say, uh, were, were just being too loud. Uh, and he had to tell them to be quiet. Um, and I, you know, one thing I think about is, you know, what for years, Federer would play and really never look that much to his box. He wouldn't look to, to, to them. Whereas Nadal and Djokovic, um, look more so to their boxes. Uh, and like Murray's another example of someone who's always like looking to his box. Um, and, you know, I wonder, and I wonder, this is not me saying I know, but I just, I'm wondering more like where, you know, where this came from. Um, clearly there's something in all three of them, uh, where, you know, they're obviously their parents have, uh, I've, I've all done something right. I've all done something right. And I'm sure for you as a, as a tennis coach, um, I think t- for, for both of us, at least I think a lot of it is just, um, you know, allowing, you know, allowing the player to be the player. I mean, for, for, for Djokovic, like his parents, um, like they didn't really have a tennis background. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think when you have parents who do have a tennis background, maybe that is more detrimental because they think that they kind of know what really they think they, they, they don't know what they don't know. Um, uh, or they think they, or that's not what I meant to say. They, they, um, kind of think they know more than the coach. And I think that can kind of get in the way. So maybe for, you know, uh, for Djokovic having parents who didn't have so much of a tennis background was helpful to him. Um, and then like, you know, Nadal's dad, not like Nadal, or Nadal's uncle. Um, it's not like Tony Nadal was a professional tennis player. Um, and I think that's also an interesting part of it where it's like, you know, these coaches, a lot of the players think that they need some high level player where maybe they don't. It's not like if Djokovic played against Marion Vida, that would be, you know, a, a, a match, right? Um, so I think that's also an interesting part of it is how, you know, who these players choose to be their coaches.
0: I think with, with parents, um, yeah, if there's so much that parents can share, and there's it's such a journey. With Lynette Fetter, you know, the book, I believe, again, Chris Bauer, where um, I have to get my book straight. Anyway, I've read where um, where Lynette Fetter said, well, I, w- I was a volunteer. They asked her why she didn't coach her son. She said, no, I was a volunteer. I helped out kids as much as I could. But she used the word, but as a teacher, I was incompetent. But she was mm-hmm. she was a late starter to tennis and ended up becoming a competitive player. I believe she represented Switzerland in that, like the forty five and overs. Um, but yeah, then how the parents were on the same page. Um, you know, a few, a few hiccups. I mean, whether yeah, you know, one one box being loud years ago, the players they shared the same box. I mean, th- times have changed. But um, but yeah, as far as a, a book is concerned, I think that. Um, that's a big, big part of it, um, is the story behind the story of the parents, um, with, you know, Ro- Roger says there's a lot of, uh, a lot of car rides home where there was no talking, the parents, I think parents being on the same page. And I, I think with, uh just knowing, uh, soccer, the, the Nadal family, uh, knowing pain, you know, you always hear the. That, the Nadal, that Nadal grew up knowing that he had to suffer, you know, the story mm-hmm. where, where he, uh, one summer he spent all his time on the beach and he ended up losing to somebody. I think it was in the 12s and, and his father was trying to calm him down because he was so upset. And he said, Hey, just look at how much fun you had at the beach this summer. And he's young Nadal said, I would give that all back to win this match. There's just so many stories that the parents can share about what, what they were like when they were really young and, yeah. um, you know, where, where's that passion come from? And then, you know, I'm always telling parents, uh, you know, the one thing you don't want to do with your child is disagree in front of the parents can disagree, but don't do it in front of the child. You know, let the kid go to bed and say, okay, let's go this way or that way, but don't let, don't let that conversation be ping pong where the kids in the middle are going, well, dad says this and mom says this and dad says this and mom says this. But um, Yvonne, why don't you say one or two last things? Maybe ask Nick a question. Nick, you could close it. What do you have, Yvonne, for us?
1: Uh, yeah, we could close it on a fun note. We mentioned some, I'd say some special stats for Fed. You know, Fed hadn't, had never retired from a match. Nadal had uh, never broken a racket. And, mm-hmm. uh, do you have another special stat that you think, um, uh, comes to mind that you could share?
2: Yeah. Um, let me think of the best ones off the top of my head. I mean, you know, Federer had the uninterrupted streak, 237 weeks of being number one. Nadal had a streak of making 52 clay court semifinals in a row uh, or winning 52 clay court semifinals in a row. Excuse me. Um, better in two thousand, you know, in two thousand six, which is considered his best year, he was ninety two and five, lost five matches. The four were to Nadal, uh, one was to Murray, and the one that he lost to Murray, he was you know clearly pretty exhausted coming in, and then um, but in two thousand in and and five he was eighty one and four, and the matches that he lost that year just pull it up real quick. I'm on, on his page right now. Um, the matches he lost that year were two. He lost to Saffin at the Australian open, which was nine, seven in the fifth set. Um, he lost to Gasquet in Monte Carlo, which was seven, six in the third set. He lost Nadal in the French open, which was four sets. And that was like his worst loss of the year. It was like a tight four set match. And then his final loss of the year was to Nalbandian in the Masters or the Year End Finals, and that was um seven six in the fifth set. So he was eighty one four and could have won three easily, have won three of the four matches that he lost. And to me, that's still like one of the most incredible things. The guy won eighty one matches, probably would have you know. And these were all these were all late in tournaments. Two were semis, one final, one quarter, but could have you know. Easily have won three or four of these. The French Open one, I'm not, you know, obviously not going to give to him. But I think Federer's dominance of also being in, um, in, in 18 of 19 Grand Slam final, uh, at, at one stretch was obviously that's absurd. Um, and then, you know, what Djokovic is doing now, the amount of top 10 wins that he has is pretty insane. But, you know, there's just, there's so many, Incredible stats about all three of them, but the one about Nadal's clay court semifinal streak comes to mind. His record at the French Open: uh, one hundred and twelve and three. I mean, that's that's insane. Uh, one stat that i had researched a couple of years ago was that Federer, if you took the amount of aces Nadal has in his career and the amount of aces Djokovic had in his career, and you added them up, and then took how many Federer had, Federer had like two thousand more than both of them combined. That was another mm-hmm. fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's so many of those stats. Encyclopedic.
0: It's, uh, it's yeah. uh done enough time
2: on it now. Yeah. Right,
0: yeah. You've been living it. No, it's really uh, great to have you on. Uh, the, um Why don't you just give us a closing comment on the big three, Nick, and we'll sign off as I think, thank you for uh, your time. And I'm sure a lot of people get a kick out of, uh, everything you had to say. I mean,
2: a lot of golden yeah, nuggets. Uh, yeah, uh, well, th- appreciate you guys having me on. This is really fun. Love listening to this podcast. So I'm really happy that I was actually able to be on it. Um, I would say, as far as the big three, I think everyone should just take time to go back watch old matches and really just appreciate appreciate it. Um, Joe and Nadal are not going to be around forever, uh, and uh, at that point, will likely be yearning for the time that they were around and missing them. So. Let's appreciate them and, and try not to uh, fight about them too much.
0: Oh, that's great, Nick. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a great podcast. And again, a golden nuggets for the treasure chest of those people uh, looking to learn more about tennis.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Nick, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, Nick, you got to come down to Wintergreen. Sure. Hang
2: out with us. Yeah, no, I would love to. Um,
0: same thing. I need, yeah. I need to make it up to Court 16. Uh, I know we talked about it one time with uh, maybe this year's U.S.
2: Open. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. All right.
0: Thanks again. Good night.
2: Good night. All right. Good night. Bye, guys.
0: That was awesome. The big three. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a good conversation. No, no. It's. I mean, he's just got it on the tip of his tongue. I mean, he's. Yeah. I mean, that's passion for you. It's, um, yeah. And you just to tell kids, I mean, come on, you know, let's, let's, let's study Roger. Let's study Rafa. Let's study Novak to live at this time and to have, watch those players. And that's the beauty of, uh, um, you know, so much, so much of it, I would say most of it. so much of it's on, on film, but there are those stories to dig for. And I, I really think, um, it's like Mike Agassi wrote a book before Andre Agassi wrote a book. And when players are that great, uh, I would love to see the parents of the big three uh, book come out. You know, the do's and don'ts of parenting. That was last week. But yeah. Uh, the uh, yeah, I mean, so much. Anyway, good night. Adios, amigos. Adios. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening.